Welcome, Business and Buckets fans. We got our business edition uh, with Miss Amy Carpenter uh, as my guest. I will be going through her story with you guys and how we met. But first, of course, I have to talk about fueled supplements, um, especially as we get towards summertime, health is wealth. Keep your immune system strong, reduce cortisol, detoxify your body on a cellular level, and relieve chronic joint pain. And increase your overall energy and vitality at fueledsupplements.com. Field multivitamins and field greens is the immunity combo your body needs to be at its best and stay strong, especially through the times that we live in today. And you can always make more money, but you can't always get back your health. Start today and save a little cash when you invest in yourself in future by using my promotion code buckets for 20% off. It's not five, it's not 10. We got 20% off at fieldsupplements.com, the best place on the web for sports and wellness products. Obviously, I plug these guys all the time. They help me keep the lights on. My first sponsor can't be thankful enough. Um, you know, we haven't had this conversation yet, but do you ever do any supplementation at all or have you previously? Um, yeah, actually, my mom was super into kind of uh, general wellness, and so I've been a big fan of supplements my whole life. What, what have you gotten into? I, I'm kind of new to the supplement game. I was always afraid to put things in my body when I wasn't educated enough and obviously couldn't even afford it anyways, but... Yeah, so I think the the key that I've always kind of been told or learned was like really know what the source is and make sure you're doing your research. Um, so I don't know much about field supplements, but <laughs> I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go look them up now. But yeah, it's like you can buy a lot of things online that aren't really regulated, and so I at this point I use there's a brand called Jaro that I you know is like reputable and recommended by a naturopath doctor that I see, and um, yeah, just like kind multivitamins, of, yeah, just, green stuff like that multivitamin b complex um i do a lot of smoothies so i just put all sorts of stuff in there because you can mask the flavors of things a lot of spinach and you know kale and whatever else you can throw in there that um you know flax oils like whatever whatever i'm in the mood for i guess yeah uh field supplements actually one of my buddies uh his dad owned all the i forget is a tanning bed company like sunrise tanning or something in montana and as Josh had gone through, he wanted to be an Olympic wrestler. And in wrestling, you're like, it's USADA certified. Like, you're very strict in what you can take. And they had problems with kids that were taking the wrong things. But you didn't know because you would just take it. You'd assume it's at a GNC that it, you know, it qualifies. So him and his dad were like, we should just start a supplement company and, you know, try to get the purest stuff that we can. And, you know, it's just another another friend that started their business. And they're doing really well. He's in Vegas now and has built up a whole company. So... Um, I know when I was looking for a sponsor, I wanted something that I feel I could be impactful, but also something I can connect with. And obviously small town kids, you know, we always got to support each other as people helping people. So that's the story of field supplements, but let's talk a little bit about how we first met. Um, I don't know. Was the first time that we met not, was it in Spokane or was it actually at one of the big events? Like where we did the dance off and things. Do you remember? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it was always such a whirlwind at Student Painters because we would have big incoming classes. And so we probably did meet at like a big training type of event, but I don't feel like the, the true like human connection oh, sort of sure. interactions occur right out the gate a lot of the time. So yeah, lots of memories of interacting <laughs> with you, but I could not tell you which one was the first. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe it was the first event that we did. So obviously with Student Painters, 
you're, you're learning how to run your own painting business, learn how to, you know, hire painters, manage kind of your little business and kind of your first introduction in a running business, unless you've done something prior to that, but this is college. So I wasn't definitely doing anything like that in high school. And I had worked with Brad, who was my manager at the time. And I was driving all the way to Spokane to learn and do things and figure things out. And we had a, a big event to get everybody together because there was different regions. And um, you were one of our, we got assigned like coaches or something to, you know, put on performances and have a good time. And we, we put together a Western like swing dance, two-step type of thing. And I just remember really with anybody in student painters that was there that was like the level ahead of me and was kind of coaching us through things. Like everyone seemed very sharp, right? Everyone seemed like very goal ambitious, you know, very inspiring people. And I was super into that. Uh, but I remember you just, you and Kevin had like this aura of just like, you guys are like a badass woman. It's like, damn, I, you know, I, she knows what the hell she's doing. It's kind of like Jessica who was, I guess, part owner at the time. Yeah. She was yeah co-owner. Yeah. Co-owner. And I was just like, man, these women, they're going places. It's really cool. And you were just like, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to figure this out. And I was just like, all right, let's do it. Um, but it was super funny because I just remember you, yeah, the aura that you gave. And uh, you were just a good time as long, you know, everyone was there. We all work hard, play hard is really what it was at the end of the day. Totally, yeah. Um, do you remember the dance and everything? So <laughs> I was trying to remember which dance this was. I do remember the country western dance. And then I also recall being part of a dance competition where we did Fergalicious, if anyone Definitely remembers wasn't a part of that one. <laughs> I did I did the Western one. I'd, I'd stick to that one. <laughs> yeah, but I remember, yeah. I mean, we always tried to make it fun, but still like promoting um, good growth opportunities, like g- gaining confidence and teamwork and that sort of thing. And um, to me, it was an amazing organization. I worked there for five years and it was all of my college career because I didn't make it through in four years I was that five and a half year track but every summer I worked with student painters and I got to experience all sorts of things and the the people development I think the culture building aspect that I learned which is a lot harder to learn in like a textbook um it's uh more emotional intelligence than like numbers intelligence and and that I think has really served me well in my adulthood People skills is huge. I mean, I've been in sales basically ever since. I mean, I was in journalism. I still consider some of that being in sales, but like, you know, you are always, always going to sell yourself or sell something at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of got leapfrogged into it. I remember, I don't know how you got started, but I literally just got a the flyer, like make $10,000 <laughs> in the summer and coming from an Indian reservation, I was like, hell yeah, $10,000. Like, what do I got to do? I literally thought I was painting houses at the first, the first moment in time. <laughs> Um, and I was down with that. Yeah, I thought it was a scam. And I was the last person hired for that year. Like, they had hired someone else for my territory. I went to Western Washington University, so I was in Bellingham. And they always hired, I think, three branch managers for that area. And so it was like mid-February that I think I was hired. And usually they wrap up the hiring by the end of February. And so I missed a lot of the training that some of the other um students would get and I was I was really thrown in at the last minute and I remember feeling a little bit disjointed and like a little unsure of what I was supposed to be doing because other people had had a lot more experience just uh, doing some homework and and pre-work coming into it but yeah I got a flyer walking through Red Square I think and I went to this information session I was the only one in there and then when I talked to my parents about it they're like this really doesn't seem authentic like this might be a scam and I was like "Eh, whatever I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it like what do I what's the worst that's going to happen? And um, yeah, that was the best thing I could have possibly done. I was hired as a freshman, so got four years of 
real world, you know, business experience and graduating. I graduated in 2008. So I was like graduating right into a very difficult job market where, you know, not only my fellow students weren't being able to find jobs, but uh, people with much more experience than me were getting laid off or having difficulty finding jobs as well. And I think having that experience from my, you know, college time really, and just the network too. I mean, the job I got right out of college was Mm -hmm. through um, Jessica's network. Yeah, so even better. It's a really, I mean, about who you know and, and I think making good connections with people and being an authentic human where you actually do, you know, care about the people you're interacting with. Um, that's always served me super well. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I wasn't a part of college in 2008. I just remember, you know, what was going on. And, you know, the times that we live in now, that one of the first things I remember when the pandemic started is like, could you imagine being like, a senior in high school having like college sports dreams or even just like a, a freshman in college and you were like getting all these experiences and then you know i don't even know some schools are going in some aren't but uh it'd be pretty brutal and that was like one of the first things i thought of so i couldn't imagine you know having to battle through that and good thing you had the right networking yeah i mean this the past you know year year and a half now so it's been pretty heartbreaking when you really think about just how many people have been impacted and experiences that have been missed all the birthdays, weddings, family reunions, um, those important life experiences that we have, you know, even like prom, homecoming, all those (laughs) things being canceled. It's, you know, it sucks. But I I also think that, you know, humans are resilient. And, uh, you know, what we live through together, I think it's it's kind of formed the sense of community that a a lot of people maybe didn't have. I never thought that I would use um, Zoom (laughs) in the way that I have. And I've been able to connect with people on a global level that before to be like oh let's do a video conference like (laughs) that was kind of weird and now I think you know people have just adapted and and you're it's it was kind of surprising to me how we could still form those connections and I I mean I'm ready for it to be over don't get me wrong (laughs) me too yeah (laughs) I even can relate to that with like FaceTime I never FaceTime now I'm FaceTiming all the time right it's like that we're we're lacking that connection so it's kind of nice to get that connection yeah well, you went to Western. I don't know your upbringing, but are you born and raised Seattle? You stayed here after college, you're working, and then you went to school here, or did you come out here for college? No, I was born and raised in Bellingham, so I uh, did my whole, yeah, I guess, public education there, and um, the reason that I chose Western was I was planning, so as a kid, it was like, thinking about career choices, it was... Um, always a function of like, sounds silly now, but like, how much money can I make? That was kind of the goal, right? So I was like, okay, lawyer, doctor, I wanted to be a veterinarian at one point, and then I realized I didn't really actually make that much money. (laughs) And, you know, both of my parents um, had skilled uh, skilled jobs, and they were both uh, paid hourly. So my dad was an engineer, and my mom was a dental hygienist. So they're they're both retired now, and they've done very well for themselves. But I remember growing up, the focus was get a good degree, get a stable job. And honestly, my dad and and mom both did a really good job with me of like, and don't rely on a man, (laughs) which was a little bit before, you know, before their time to be so focused on like, hey, be an autonomous, independent woman, you know, be able to support yourself and then worry about who your life partner is going to be. And um, that has shown up for me in many ways in my adulthood. But they were super focused on find that stable career, good paying, high skill, sort of hourly focus and so when um when student painters came along this this concept of entrepreneurialism was like what and i think that's (laughs) why they were 
hesitant for me to pursue that opportunity too, as it was so foreign to them. They had always, in my dad's upbringing was um, very poor. He went, he went to 15 different schools in his 12 years of public education. Dang. Didn't have a lot of stability in his life. Um, no one in his family had, um, I believe had never finished high school, let alone gone to college. And he was able to, at that time, college was not the expense that it is today. He was actually able to work an hourly job over the summer and pay for his schooling and graduate debt free. And that completely changed the trajectory of his life. So both my brother and I, um, we've talked about this multiple times, but we're super grateful that we, we were fortunate to grow up in a very stable household. And I think that, and he's an entrepreneur himself as well. So both surprise, of us, surprise. yeah, not surprising, I guess, but him and I both, um, because we had that stability, it really allowed us to, think more creatively and take maybe some greater risk just because we knew, um, you know, if we needed to, we weren't planning on living in mom and dad's basement, but like that opportunity was there. And so we could afford to take some risks that, you know, not everyone has really afforded the opportunity to be able to, or maybe doesn't feel as safe to, um, but yeah, went to, you know, school up there. And then I chose Western because I was like, okay, I want to go to a, um, more affordable four-year undergrad degree because I'm going to be a doctor. And that's like 10 years of school. <laughs> well, one quarter in, <laughs> I was like, mm, this 8 a.m. chemistry class really just isn't <laughs> doing it for me. <laughs> and then when I um, got into student painters and worked one summer, almost got fired on multiple occasions, was not a high performer that first year, um, but really stuck with it. And at the end of the summer, I was like, huh, I made more money than I would have made working full-time or reasonably full-time for the summer. And, you know, I had to work 80-hour weeks some weeks, but then towards the tail end of the summer, you get that feel of, like, what passive income really can look like. And so then when I went back to school and tried to work an hourly job, I was like, yeah, this isn't... I don't think this is for me. <laughs> and on top of that, picking a major, which is always really challenging, and, like, when you're 19 years old, you're, like, you don't really know what you I wasn't even, doing. like, matured yet, but yeah, I was lucky that I just... <laughs> I had a football coach that guided me to the right degree, and he, I was like, damn, that's genius, actually. And I stuck with it, and that's why I graduated in four years. But, nice. I, I mean, yeah, most people have no damn clue. They haven't even, like, you know, they're forced to think about it, which is kind of messed up. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's just it's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, and I picked business because it's like, you know, that's what you, that's what you did. Like, you were supposed to pick business, or you were supposed to pick uh, something that was, like, pre-med. Like, I remember my dad was like, just don't pick you know, anthropology or creative writing or whatever. Oh, yeah. And in hindsight, I actually wish that I would have pursued something that was a little bit more in line with what I'm passionate about, um, which, you know, business classes are great, but I learned a lot more just with the practical experience than I did ever out of a textbook. And I did get a second um, degree. I have a degree in German because I'd studied abroad mm. in high school and was was fluent in German. I'm not anymore. <laughs> Um, and it was a, it was a great way to balance for me in terms of, I would do, you know, two or three business classes a quarter and then one or two German language or literature type of courses. And it was an, a very different part of my brain. And I appreciated the exposure I got, you know, the, the students that I met in each program were, you know, a completely different set mm -hmm. of students. And so I think it gave me just a, yeah, a better experience than I, I might've had if I had really only done the business uh, route. So I think, yeah, it's, it is important to think about, of course, getting a degree that's going to be relevant to something that you want to do in the future can be important, 
But more and more nowadays, there were a lot of big companies and small companies are removing the requirement to have a college degree. Like we've actually decided not to put that as an absolute requirement. It's a college degree or similar experience mm -hmm. required because for a lot of different reasons, I mean, I'm really passionate about like being more equitable, being more inclusive um, in my personal business and just in the way I live my life in general. And not everyone does have the same access to college and a lot of students um rightly so are, are really considering like hey if i'm going to go a hundred thousand dollars into debt at an interest rate that isn't that low like what how does that impact my life compared to maybe doing a trade or doing something that's self-taught like in my world my current business is uh we work a lot with the electrical trades and mm -hmm. electricians can start at age 18 and be making you know 60 70 80 thousand dollars a year by age 20 and, you know, if, if that's your income potential right out the gate with no student debt and you start investing and you start being smart with your money, there's a lot you can do. So it's not to say that one way is the right way or, or either way is the way to go. But it's just it's interesting when you really think about all the angles. Yeah, especially as I grew up. I mean, I feel like I was at kind of the, the age where things started transforming. I mean, that's happened for generations, but where, you know, I grew up, you have to get a college degree if you want to make money. And that was my mindset. Well, I want to make some money. Like, I got to go to college, you know? And yeah, to the point, you know, some of the big software sales companies that I'm around, they're, they're starting to remove that. I think it's more of a, a nice to have, not a mandatory thing. You know, the toughest part with a lot of the big jobs out here anyways is just recruiting because of like the algorithms they do to get it. Uh, it's, it's more of a who do you know type situation. Um, but yeah, that's a funny story. Rewinding it back a little bit, you said you have a brother only sibling or did you have multiple? Oh yeah, only sibling. So cool. I have one younger brother. Younger brother. How much younger? Uh, we are three and a half years apart. Okay, so not too 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 tremendously different. Mm -hmm. um, when you grew up in Bellingham, I think of Bellingham as kind of like Missoula where I grew up. It's very like, you know, hippie, local, um, really into like beer and, you know, outdoor activities. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. But what was it like going... To school there, you know, obviously you had your family that was doing well and, and, and your brother there um, outside of a city and knowing that you wanted to still go to school, but go to school in your hometown. Like I went to a school in Montana, but I didn't necessarily live in the same town. Did you feel, especially after traveling abroad, that you wanted to try going out or was it just like, hey, cheap, it's here. I'm down to do it. Yeah, so that's a good question. I, um, I only applied to in-state schools because... My dad, one thing he really did well for me was really taught me kind of the value of frugality and making a a good financial choice. And so he had kind of drilled into me, like, if you go out of state, and again, this is not a knock on anyone that chooses that route. It was just for me, you know, paying double or triple the tuition to go out of state versus to stay in state. That decision to me made more sense to pay mm -hmm. in-state tuition. Um, I applied at WSU, UW, and Western and was accepted to those um, three schools. And in the end, Western to me was the choice I made because I wanted to be not in a rural like area at which WSU is like a beautiful campus. And both my parents were cougars and they, I think Loki <laughs> wanted me to go there. And that's probably part of why I rejected it. <laughs> and then I hadn't ever lived in a big city and UW was just a massive, you know, powerhouse of a school. And I, I, I don't think I felt like I would do as well in those really large, like 400 plus student classes. So Western felt like a really good um, sort of compromise. And I was 
very certain I didn't want to live at home and I wanted the college experience. So I lived in the dorms my first year and it didn't, it did feel, it felt like a totally different experience to me because where I grew up and where Western is, it's, you know, the opposite side of town, which is 10 minutes by car. It's not like it's <laughs> yeah. far away. I remember back in the day, like, oh, all the way, I, don't, I can't hang out with you. You're too far. Yeah, like, you're what? like 10 or 15 <laughs> yeah. minutes away. So it did feel um, like I got enough separation. And then I had also made the decision super last minute. This was a challenging decision. I was supposed to room in the dorms with one of my high school friends. And I had actually done another trip abroad the summer leading up to my first year of college. And I was just getting this kind of like intuition or feeling that I really wanted to branch out and push myself a little bit out of my comfort zone. And I was concerned that if I matched with, or if I stayed in a dorm with the same friends that I had had in high school, that I wouldn't necessarily get that same experience as if I pushed myself a little bit out of my comfort zone. So super last minute, I essentially broke up with this college friend or this (laughs) high school friend and Um, it didn't really go very well, but I tried to be diplomatic about it. And then I requested, um, a last minute sort of, you know, match with someone I didn't know. And so I ended up rooming with, um, an amazing person who was from Issaquah. And that's when I actually first learned about the stereotypes of Bellingham. I didn't know it was a small hippie town. I didn't realize that we were, yeah, that we had these different stereotypes. And it was really funny to hear the perspective of these friends that I had that had moved up there from the Seattle area. And now when I go back home, I can see it. It's just, it's a lovely place. It's a little bit slower pace of life. Um, the mindset of everyone that lives up there just seems, you know, amazing, like very down to earth, very chill, very community centric. Very free. <laughs> very free. Yep. And it, it was a great place to grow up. And I really enjoy going back to visit. My parents still live there. And, um, but I, I personally really like being in a larger city where I have just more access to different cultures and um, the bigger businesses and, and and it's a little faster paced, which is kind of, I guess, become my style. So <laughs> it's funny how things change. Yeah. <laughs> um, traveling abroad. So I've never done that. I've, I've only been in North America, Canada, Mexico. That's all I've done. I, I want to travel overseas. Just never had the opportunity. So what led you to do that in high school? How were you able to do that? And what were some of the learning experiences? Cause yeah, I could only imagine doing that and how much, you know, once you leave your nest for me, you like kind of grow, right? So I'm sure you, you, you had some growing experiences. So yeah, what led to that? You know, what did you learn from it and why did you do it? Yeah, that's a super, it's kind of a funny story. It's a very telling of my personality. So the way that started, it was the summer between uh, middle school and high school. And we, uh, my parents were always the type where we, they're from Bellingham, this fits the stereotype, (laughs) outdoorsy, you know, camping, hiking, national parks type of vacations. We never got on an airplane. We always went places we could drive. And so we were doing this really cool, fun road trip. I remember it, my brother and I, we talked about him briefly. We didn't get along very well growing up. It took both of us moving out of the house for us to really form the friendship that we now have. But I do remember this trip being one of the first trips where him and I actually really had some cool bonding experiences. Like we drove through Montana and it was somewhere outside of Missoula, I think. But you guys have some pretty massive thunderstorms and like crazy oh, yeah. heavy rains. And like we just don't really get those same storms in the um, western half of Washington. So we were at like a KOA campground and there was like <laughs> crazy lightning and crazy rain. And we were like, 
I remember just chasing each other through puddles and we were in the pool way longer than we should have been with like literally lightning around. <laughs> Sounds safe. <laughs> Super safe. So, um, so that was on our way to Yellowstone. And so at Yellowstone we were, it was August and we had our campground set up and then suddenly like this map, probably the same storm rolls through. And I remember it just being like this downpour. We had like a literal river running through our campground and Brian and I are in the tent and we're like, Oh, this sucks. Like, you know, we're both, teenagers so everything sucked right <laughs> big yep, attitudes yep. but we were um sitting in there like no campfire couldn't really do anything and we look across to the next campsite and there's this like elaborate set of like cascading tarps with a perfect fire in the middle and the smoke is going right up the center of all these tarps and i'm like what's up with this family and so they had a um a boy who was who appeared to be about the same age as my brother so i'm like brian go over there make friends with that guy so that we can hopefully get invited to hang out around this campfire because I don't want to sit in a tent in the rain. So apparently my first like experience at delegation, cause I didn't go meet him. I sent Brian to go meet him. And Big Brian's sister like, moves. <laughs> totally. And he's like, they don't even speak English. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm like, I don't know. Like hit stuff with sticks, like do boy stuff. Like just go make friends with him. He's like, Ugh, fine. So he does, and what I had hoped would happen, happened, and so we end up sitting around this campfire. This family is from Switzerland, oh, wow. and the father of the family is a software engineer, and this was like back in the late 90s, and so he um, did very well for himself. He would come to the U.S. every year for some sort of big software conference, and so we kind of got to chatting, and my dad's very extroverted and always very good at like talking with perfect strangers, and so I'm sure that has helped me a lot in my sales career as well. And so we're chatting with them, and I'm in my head, I'm like, this is so cool. They're like literally from another country on the other side of the world. Like my world had been like Washington and a few adjacent states. Like leaving the country was not something that even seemed in reach, and so chatting with his family it was like really fun and then the next morning they're packing up and I remember in my head being like oh man I was hoping that we would like I don't know I think I had imagined like maybe we would become friends with them and then our whole family would go get to visit <laughs> Switzerland or some fantasy like that and so I was like well I'm gonna ask for their email address because who knows and so I went over asked the mom I was like hey it'd be cool to keep in touch with you can I get your email she gave me her email and then when I went back to my freshman year of high school, I switched my language from French to German because in my naive high school brain, I was like, oh, I'm totally going to be able to email with this family in a foreign language. <laughs> like, it must be so easy to learn German. German's not an easy language to learn, turns there out. It wasn't Google Translate, I'm assuming. There was definitely <laughs> not Google Translate at that time. So in my first, uh, first year of German class, we had a study abroad, um, like, sales rep essentially but i'm sure they called themselves like an, a coordinator or something <laughs> so they come in pitching study abroad programs well they're super expensive like so i come home from that um event and i'm like hey mom and dad like i really want to study abroad and they're like we there's no way we can afford that it's i mean i think the i don't remember what the programs were but i feel like they were like tens of thousands to do a study abroad program so i was like well what if me negotiating <laughs> what if that family we met says I can stay with them. Can I go? And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm sure they didn't think that this family would say yes. And so I emailed them and I was like, hey, I'd love to study abroad. What do you guys think? And they were like, we'd love to have you. So I got to study abroad in Switzerland, not through a program. My mom and my host mom did all the paperwork and the visa 
you know, whatever you have to do to study abroad. And, um, they, as far as I know, like they just hosted me. They didn't ask for any compensation. Like it was just one of those connections. They took me all, like, I remember getting there the first week I got to Switzerland. They were like, Hey, so, um, you have a couple of weeks before school starts. We were thinking we could go on a road trip to France or maybe Italy. Like, (laughs) what do you think? And I'm just like shell shocked. Like, uh, yeah, that'd be great. So they were so gracious. I mean, that was a really formative experience and, um, nine 11 happened while I was there. So it was oh, wow. really interesting to watch such a significant event in our history happen while I wasn't within the country. And so I definitely was seeing a little bit more of the narrative from both sides. Um, and coming home, I mean, I was completely transformed. I was six, age 16 and 17 while I was there came back to high school and it's like nothing had changed no one had really evolved and I really felt like I was an adult and a completely different person I could not wait to graduate and like get out of there (laughs) to be able to like re kind of reinvent myself Mm -hmm. because sometimes you know I'm sure many people relate to that you get people have formed their perception of you and it's very very difficult to break out of that so but that's how I studied abroad and um, if anyone ever has the opportunity in any form to go visit another place, be hosted by someone somewhere else, like that experience was amazing and also shocking. Like I, I thought showing up there, like, oh, I'm American. Everyone's going to love me. Like we're the coolest country in the world. <laughs> Cause that's what I was taught in school, you know? Yeah. And I got there and I was like, oh, we are not loved by everyone <laughs> in the world. And okay. Rude awakening. And at, you know, getting that experience at such a young age has, I think, really helped me be a lot more um, open-minded and empathetic towards different cultures, languages, all of that. And also, speaking a second language is freaking hard. I don't know if we can curse on this. Yeah, but it's not PG-13. Okay, it's fucking hard to <laughs> learn another language. And it gave me so much appreciation for anyone who is here with English as their second language. You know, every time I hear someone whose English is, like, even, like, a few words and they're putting themselves out there and trying, like, yep. that's so much respect that I have for that person because it's really scary to do that. It's just extra work. I mean, even my podcast sponsor thing, like I should probably memorize those, right? You know, like just memorize them, <laughs> just say it nice. When I'm reading off the script, it's like, you got to put in the work, right? Um, you but talk- now do it in Spanish also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I-, I took Spanish all through high school, took it through uh, college and was like pretty good at it. But if you don't use it, you know, you definitely lose it. Yes. Um, so then I dated a girl from Venezuela and she was like, you got to relearn it. And I thought about it, but I remembered all the work. But just from that knowledge, like I could understand it pretty well. They speak so damn fast, though. It's hard to keep up. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I've so gone lost it. But it, yeah, I would love to know another language. Something that you, I think everybody should have to do. Um, you know, I don't think our education system, like we kind of teach like Spanish, like we kind of taught Spanish, but like nothing's ever taken serious. And I didn't take it serious because no one else took it serious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, super jealous that you were able to do that. You talked about maturing, though. So you know, my biggest story of my upbringing was like my small town, not any, anybody gets out. I'm the only one of my high school class that's out of there now. Wow. Everyone else is still there. I was the only one. <laughs> I want to say one year, or two years after college or after high school that wasn't married or, and didn't have kids. Everybody else was. Did you witness anything like that in Bellingham? Did do you feel like a, a, the course group of people that you knew then were, were kind of similar or was it different? Because Bellingham is a little bigger than where I'm from, but. I feel like there was always two two tracks. Like there was the people that stayed in Bellingham and never left. And then there was the other camp that was like, couldn't wait to get out of Bellingham. And I felt like I was kind of in the middle because I was, I always knew I was not going to like 
live there forever, but going to college there was like kind of a intentional choice. So I don't feel like a lot of people get married super young or have kids super young. Like I think that kind of similar to the trends that we see in a lot of bigger cities where people are focusing on their education and, um, you know, waiting, (laughs) yeah, waiting to get married and have kids, uh, was definitely, definitely true there as well. Um, I honestly am, you know, not really friends with anyone from high school. Like that, that transition of being gone for an entire year, my junior year, and then coming home my senior year and doing some classes in at Western, you know, preemptively. And I was only really in the high school for like two and a half years total. So I have a couple of friends that I've kind of kept in touch with very loosely through social media, but really the the closest friends I have um, that I still keep in touch with are I've really from college. Now, how about the growth experience that you had going overseas? So, you know, you kind of briefly talked about like I matured, I grew up. What are some of the key things that you took away that that taught you? Because that's a, you know, we're learning a lot at those ages, you know, even in college, you know, people that can go to school different places or study abroad as well. What are some of the, the major things that you took away from that? Um, there was a lot of things. I mean, the culture is just so different. Um, my German teacher in high school, I'm eternally grateful to her. Frau Kozad was her name. (laughs) And I've told her this actually, she's retired, but amazing woman. And she was really focused as kids, you know, when you hear like a word that sounds different or you learn some sort of cultural norm that isn't the same as what we're used to, our first reaction is to go, Oh, that's weird. Oh, it's (laughs) weird. So weird. And she was like, it's not weird. It's different. And that sort of mantra was something that I I was able to take into that study abroad experience. Um, So some of the things that were different were um, obviously learning a whole language is different. Um, The the culture there was a lot more focused on sustainability than I saw in the U.S. I remember getting super lectured by my host dad my first week there (laughs) where he was like, so you took a 30-minute shower and that's not something we do here. And I was like what (laughs) he's like water is a scarce resource using water for 30 minutes is not okay and so in europe they or i can't say all of europe but in switzerland and in germany where i was um you know you get in the shower you turn the water on long enough to get your hair wet you turn it back off Mm -hmm. and then you only turn it back on to rinse and then you turn it back off again so there was this foundation of sustainability that i received through um my host family educating me on those things uh, that definitely stuck with me. And to be fair, my parents were actually very into recycling and conservation and all of that as well. Um, but I think when you're in a new place and you're trying to fit in and adapt, you also are a little more receptive versus when your own parents are like, you need to do this. And you're like, don't tell me what to do. It's a different, you know, dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that, and then just the whole schooling system there is very different. You end up, um, there's a lot of different schooling tracks in Switzerland that that you start to separate into as young as fifth grade. So I think our education system here, you know, everyone's supposed to go on the same pathway. And there's a whole bunch of studies and documentation now that show how standardized testing only favors some learning styles, or maybe some people aren't really supposed to be pushed to go the college track and they would be better off, you know, pursuing like something more artistic or work with their hands or something in the trades. And so it was interesting to me that the testing and the the pathways that occurred for the schools there, there was three or four, I can't recall, different levels of middle school and high school. Hmm. And you could, you could switch between the tracks because some of the sort of 
I guess, backlash for that type of schooling is like, when you're a fifth grader, like, it's not fair that your whole education path is chosen when you're so young. Yeah, true. And you, so you could go between the two. There was like pathways for that. But I, I did find that really interesting in my junior year of high school. I had five different days of a completely different schedule. So it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would have, you know, German and English and yeah, I don't know, chemistry. And then Tuesday and Thursday, it would be like a different set of classes. So it, it much more mirrored how like a university type of schedule was. And I just found all of my, you know, classmates there to be super independent. Like everyone, there was no uh, like school bus system, like everyone got there via biking or public transit. Hmm. And so it just, you felt like you were acting more like an adult and had this different level of responsibility. And I'm sure plenty of people here have that experience in their schooling, but compared to what I had in Bellingham, which was fairly sheltered, fairly, <laughs> you know, middle, upper middle class, like you had a lot of services provided to you. Like it was just that, that part was very different. Um, and I think just seeing the different narrative on the news, honestly, was pretty interesting so yeah I just I became a less picky eater <laughs> like that was a big change for me personally my mom when I came home she's like I don't even know who you are because I <laughs> I was the kid that I got her to write a note that I was allergic to carrots oh, wow. to my summer camp just because I didn't want to eat them it's brutal yeah so I came home and I liked carrots and my mom was like this is shocking <laughs> She's probably like, hell yeah, you should go back. <laughs> yeah, but I think I really did. I just, yeah, I got so much exposure to so many cultures. I mean, in Europe, you have countries that are smaller than states here. So we, you know, every single break that my school had, that you know, my family, the host family was amazing. They took me to a bunch of different countries. So I got to witness how a group of countries plays nice with each other when at that time their currencies were all different, their languages were different. And there was kind of this respect shown towards those differences as opposed to, I think sometimes I hear the narrative here where like, Oh, different is bad. Mm -hmm. And so coming back from that and realizing no different is just different. And like, we all actually have the same basic human needs and cultures are built up of the same basic things like food, music, um, family, like the, you know, we all, we all have those needs. And I think that was, so amazing that I got that experience at such a young age. Have you gone back since? Some yeah. So I studied abroad in college again. That was like what I used. <laughs> gotta go my... back. Gotta go out. I think. Well, I realized, and I think someone had, some people had told me too. But it's like when you're in your education, like I was never going to have a chance to spend six months, or it was unlikely I would have a chance to spend six months in another country, and not have that like financially set yeah. me back or career-wise set me back like trying to get a job in another country can be challenging so I was like if if I can somehow swing this to do another study abroad I'm gonna do it and so I did have that opportunity and I, I lived in Italy for six months um, also my junior year of college and then after that I mean my whole adult life has really been save enough money to go on a trip and go on the trip like I don't really care about what car I drive I don't really care like I do a lot of thrift shopping like I've just always really thought that that those experiences meant more to me than anything that I could, that, like material things that I could buy. What's the fa your favorite country that you've been to so far? Oh, people always ask me that. I don't have a favorite. I would say there's a couple favorites. Okay, a couple favorites. <laughs> yeah. So um, Puerto Rico is not technically a country. It's part of the U.S., but um, 
has such rich cultural history, the food, the music, the weather. I mean, it's just, it's so beautiful. Um, I've been there three times. I have a couple of really close friends that are from there. And it's just like, if you can go to Puerto Rico, go to Puerto Rico. Um, I also had a really amazing experience in Kenya. Um, I went to Kenya <laughs> naively. This was, I think it was 2010. And I had like maybe $2,000 for my whole trip. That's not enough money to go to another country for a month. <laughs> and so I was super thankful because I have a friend in Washington who's also Kenyan. And he's like, oh, link up with my family when you're there. When I got there, they're like, hey, this is going to be your room. We're going to host you. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Because if that hadn't happened, I'm not really sure. I'm sure I would have figured it out. But that was that was pretty cool. And the culture there, the landscape, the wildlife just I really fell in love with Kenya as well. I've been back there three times also. I took my parents. Um, well, I didn't take them. They went with me. But I <laughs> <laughs> got to show them around and introduce them to some of my friends and uh, that I had met. And they, of course, loved it. And so I've just... I keep trying to see new places every time I have the, the opportunity to do so. And it's uh, I think it's a lifelong habit now. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing that at that age. You know, I think my only family vacation until I started paying for my own was like California. So um, opening your eyes to that, you know, the more I travel, the more I want to travel and and try new things. Um, I'm always worried about traveling internationally unless I have someone that's like done it before because just a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was always that's always been what's held me back. But that's really cool to hear. Um, You know, I, I, I always am an advocate for traveling and yeah, seeing different cultures Difference, not bad. I think those are really cool lessons. Yeah. Um, when we talk about student painters now, you had talked about how you had gotten started. Talk a little bit about, because you were there for five years. I, I was there for two years. The second year is when they kind of dissolved. Um, but what were the roles that you had gone through? Because I, th- I believe you got through a different roles. And what experiences did those prepare you for like what you're doing today? Yeah. So I was a branch manager for two years, which I think is the same role that you had. So you've probably talked a little bit about that in your um, show. But uh, my first year as a branch manager, you had to do at least... So they did a trip to Mexico, which that was also the first time I had ever been sort of enticed to go on like more of a luxury <laughs> trip. So like the Mexico trip was like the thing you strove for. So I was like, okay, I got to go to Mexico. And so if you did... 55,000 of revenue, you got to you got the trip paid for. It's like President's Club or something yep. to that effect. But if you did over 45,000, you could pay half of your trip and you had to commit to coming back the second year. <laughs> and so I almost got fired. You had to sell a certain amount of work to actually start the production in the summer. And I had my cutoff date extended, I think, two times. I basically begged them to like give me a little bit more time. Got to start the summer and then it was just like one struggle after the next. And so then the second year... Can we talk about those struggles for we a second? We can before? talk about the struggles. Because when I think of Amy, she was like one of the the better people. She had won the awards, right? You know, I, I was a very competitive individual. I had a very good first year. I was the only one that made it, though, so I did get a little bit of an expanded territory, per se, even though, like, all of Missoula, the population compared to the other territories was very, very low. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I didn't even know that you had struggled, so that's interesting. Oh, so, like, okay. is this because this was your first time getting into sales? Was it hard, you know, kind of getting out of your shell? Were you struggling with the sales aspect? Like, what was it that really – or did you just not try very hard at the beginning? Or <laughs> It was, was not it? a lack of trying, but – what did I not struggle with would really be the question. So um, I think, so growing up and uh, I was I was raised fairly conservative uh, Christian and I had uh, 
some belief systems that were kind of instilled in me about like what a woman's place is and how women are supposed to be. And um, I don't think it was only the religion. I think society as a whole puts a lot of pressure on women, uh, young women in particular to, you have to be, you know, social, but not too social or pretty, but not too pretty. I mean, it's just like we're constantly pulled in two different directions and no one's ever actually happy with like just letting (laughs) us be. (laughs) And student painters was a really healthy environment. I felt for, teaching young women and young men that like there's a lot of women we're equal yeah and and it's like it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman just like work hard get your shit done like be a goal crusher and that's what matters it doesn't matter what you know gender you are so um but that first year i really struggled with sales because i wanted to be perceived as nice Mm. and so this challenge of asking for the job being assertive leaning into the inevitable discomfort that's going to come from when you're like, okay, I've shown you everything you want. Please buy from me. And just asking for the sale takes a lot of confidence. And you have to fake it till you make it for sure. When you're 18 years old and asking someone to spend $4,000 for a paint job, you're like, oh my God, this is so the, much money. I remember my first sale. I was like, I don't even know how to paint this shit yet. And <laughs> also that you're really, you. I mean, it taught us to believe in ourselves. And I think that's part of why I did better my second year is because I've always struggled with having that faith in myself of like, I'll just figure it out. I mean, I'm, I'm 36 this year. And like, I think only in the last couple of years have I really become comfortable with giving myself enough credit to say, I'll figure it out. Like, I don't really know how I'm going to get from here to there, but I'm going to figure it out. But at 18, I definitely didn't have that confidence. That's the biggest skill, honestly, is just figuring it out. I, I relate to people on that all the time is like, I never knew what I was doing half the fucking time, but I'd figure it out. And if you do struggle, you can fail forward just because you, you know, it's like snowboarding. My first time, worst time ever. It's my favorite thing to do now. Mm-hmm. Like you got to fail through some things that I actually give it a chance and see if you like it or not. So totally. Yeah. So my sales process used to be, okay, I'm going to make them like me. I made it super personal, which is not great for your self-esteem either. But I was like, okay, if I just, if they just like me enough, they're going to pick me. My closing rate was like, I don't know. 10% or something like you wanted to be closing somewhere in, in the 30% range so that you knew if you did three to four sales calls, you would sell one of them. So I was working so much harder rather than smarter, doing a ton of appointments, not even asking them for the sale. I had no idea what they were thinking or what their decision-making criteria was. And I somehow made it kind of figured it out at some point and was like, oh, it's a lot easier if you just ask a couple more questions because then you know what they're thinking and that's okay. And no, it's not mean and they're not going to not like me because I asked them for those questions. Mm-hmm. So kind of overcame that hurdle a little too late though. And then, and then employee management, a whole another struggle <laughs> again, because I'm like, nice. oh, I want to be friends <laughs> with them. I want to be nice. Like I want them to like me. Well, unfortunately, um, I learned the very hard way that like when you're a leader and this is my philosophy, at least the respect comes first, mutual respect, but it's, it's a little bit more like rigid at first. I'm in charge. You're in training. Like, let's get to a place where the base foundation is there and then friendship can come after that. I did it in reverse. And then once we were friends, I felt mean holding them accountable. So like reprimanding someone for being late. And then if I got a defensive attitude, that would like felt like conflict and I didn't like conflict. 
So I remember this. Um, it was my second month. It was the, it was a week after the 4th of July. This whole painting crew I had, especially the project, uh, what do we call them? Production manager? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So the basically the crew lead had such an attitude. He definitely thought that he should be in my position and that he should be making more money and that, I don't know, he didn't respect me at all, which, I mean, I did some things that probably kind of earned that, but also wasn't a nice person. So the sale, the the paint job we're doing, I had sold an interior paint job, which they told us, don't do that because yeah, you're I in people's and house. I fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. So, and so the, the customer was like, Amy you need to come to this job. And I was scared of my crew at this point. So I was like, I'm just going to avoid going to the job sites. So the customer calls me on like day three and he's like, you need to come out here. And I went out there and I was like, wow, this does not look good. And so then the next day, um, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but I remember it came to a point where my manager, Scott was like, if they're not there by 9am, you need to fire all of them. And I was like, oh my God, that's so scary and so mean. (laughs) And so they didn't, they all showed up. They're supposed to be there at 8.30. They all rolled in at like 9.30. And I was like, oh my God, okay, I have to do it. Just do it. And it was like, one of the, honestly, one of the scariest things to have to fire three people. My confidence was at like zero. The customer's mad at me and I'm firing this crew where I'm like, how am I going to finish this paint job? (laughs) I don't have a crew. Like that, I kind of felt trapped and like I need to keep these painters because otherwise, how am I going to finish the job? So my manager was like, fire them all and move all your clients back a week or two in your schedule and you're going to finish it yourself and you're going to have a lot of time to think. And that was like just a brutal (laughs) week. But I got the job done. The customer was happy in the end. I rehired a crew with a renewed resolve to be a consistent and assertive manager. And that was the beginning of learning that skill set. It was too late in that summer to do much more than like crawl my way, claw my way, I should say, to that minimum mark to get to go to Mexico because that was like really what I wanted. But in the second year, I was really fortunate to report to Jessica, who was the co-owner, total powerhouse, uh, amazing female mentor for me. And she really helped me break down some of those barriers that I had kind of created for myself where I thought, oh, I need to be a certain way and you have to be, you know, if you're too assertive, I mean, you hear it now and like in memes and and (laughs) articles and whatever, it's like, oh, women who are too assertive are considered bitchy or too aggressive or whatever. And if you look at the same behavior for their male counterparts, it doesn't have those same connotations. Super annoying. It's just still a reality that we face, but she really helped me learn how to navigate some of those things and so I went from doing I think I did 44,000 my first year to over 100,000 my second year and so that was what earned me the manager of the year award which was really exciting and like such a testament to getting to turn around that would have been a huge just ego confidence boost right totally I was like on cloud nine feeling like such a boss you know (laughs) was this before you went abroad again yeah so the that year is what allowed me to do that so Mm. I I learned through that experience that as an entrepreneur, you can, and so the second year I had two painting crews. So I was producing twice the revenue with actually less effort than my first year because I had some skill sets at that point. So I took, I think I made about $40,000 and the study abroad program I wanted to do was 30 K. So I like paid cash for the study abroad program. And that's what I did my um, third year of school after that second year. That's really cool. I mean, the reason I bring this up is, 
you know, something like this or, you know, even after school, there's intro to sales, like entrepreneurship type jobs out there that'll do like manager trainings and things like that. But how powerful is that, that, you know, we're able to get these experiences through um, college. And for me too, like I didn't have a lot of confidence. I'm a very good athlete and I was very into athletics, but like wrestling, for example, that was a new sport in high school for me because I didn't have it in the school I went to in Wyoming. And that's such a mental game. Like I would lose because I thought the guy would beat me. Right. And then like, as you know, I grow older and I'm like realizing these lessons, like the student painters is I'm like, everyone's like, you're so confident now. That's the reason why is that job. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So it's cool to hear kind of how you got blossomed through that, that experience as well. Um, and you know, yeah, it's a bummer. It's not there. There's still things like that, but yeah, if you have an opportunity to to get management training or entrepreneurship training in college, hundred percent recommend it. That was (laughs) life changing for sure. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you, you you got promoted, I'm, su- I'm assuming, to like the manager of managers? Yep. So um, because I studied abroad, the only job that I could do that didn't require me to work in the spring was to do this. Um, they called it the field advisor. So you basically went around and helped um, first year, primarily first-year managers to make sure they were doing a good job with quality control, giving them kind of uh, advice and input for employee management. I mean, I was a good fit for that role because... I do love coaching. I love um, mentorship. That's been a very common thread through my whole life. And so I I felt like I really thrived in that role and it it set me up to be an executive manager the next year. Um, And also I had gone through a lot of struggles where it's like, I wasn't just like, oh yeah, I'm so good at this job. Like I was quite terrible at the job at first. And then fortunately, you know, was able to kind of figure it out and, and struggle through it. So my fourth summer, this was my technically after my fourth year of college, but because I was doing that five plus year track, I could do this. (laughs) So I was um, an executive manager, which means that you have a team of anywhere from eight to 12 branch managers. And that experience was so amazing because um, you have to create results through influence alone. There was no benefit to me as an executive manager going out and selling a paint contract for my branch manager because I would have removed the opportunity for them to actually learn. It's really hard as a coach to watch the people you're coaching struggle and like maybe fall on their face a little bit, but it's formative. And so getting that experience of, okay, I'm going to let this person really kind of fuck this whole sales call up and maybe not sell it, but let them keep stumbling over themselves in a way where then the feedback I could give them afterwards was more valuable versus if I just cut them off and stepped in and did it myself, um, they missed out on a huge opportunity to learn. So that in and of itself was pretty amazing. And then I decided that I was going to make my team feel like they were really proud of being on Amy's team (laughs) instead of anyone else's. So there's like this show in the eighties called the A team. Mm -hmm. And so I made, I remember with a red Sharpie, I drew the A from the A team logo on these little name tags and everyone on my team came into the first sales training with their A-team badge <laughs> and I took like a boom box and played the like theme song and we all marched in there. I remember it was Kevin and Brian, my brother, who was also an executive manager and I feel like there's one more and I'm not remembering who it was. They were all like, ugh, so annoyed <laughs> that I had thought to do that and they had it. And so then every training after that, every team had an entrance, like an entrance song or an entrance (laughs) dance or whatever. And I remember actually thinking about that later, like how cool that was to have influence change, not only on my own team and helping them to feel 
inspired and confident and excited to be part of the team I was leading, but it actually raised the bar for everyone else in the organization. And I think that in hindsight, that's a really cool thing that happened because I didn't only improve the experience for my own team, I improved the experience for everyone else. And I think that's a, an important perspective for anyone who's in a leadership position to think about. It's not about being super competitive with another team. I mean, we were competitive, but <laughs> but it's more about like, you know, raising everyone or like, I'm forgetting what the common catchphrases are, but like where you can pull other people up along with you or, you know, raise all the boats or whatever. Yeah, like, There's so many analogies there, <laughs> but yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Probably like crossing my <laughs> my analogies. But yeah, so that was a really um, great experience. And so I actually did go on to win the Executive of the Year Award, meant, meaning that my collective team produced the most revenue. And I think that that experience is uh, something I really use still every day in my you know career now is like, how can you inspire and influence change coach others, help them have breakthroughs all without stepping in and doing it yourself. It's so valued that, cause what were you 20 years old at the time? I was 22. Still very <laughs> valuable. I mean, I, I got into a management training program after I, I graduated, I decided journalism wasn't for me. Um, mostly due to seniority and getting the taste of entrepreneurship. It's like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm not learning as much. I'm literally like a slave at the bottom of the barrel. And like, I had done this thing where you're kind of empowered to grow yourself, do better. And it's not just for ratings for the news station. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my, my conflux there. Um, but at that age to be able to manage managers, I mean, that's such a cool experience. That's really helped me once I got into management to learn so much about myself. Cause like to your point, you weren't always the greatest at it. I mean, you had a killer year, a hundred thousand. I didn't do that in my time. You had two crews going, but once the, the, my favorite quote is like the best way to learn something is to teach it. Right. If I could teach someone to drive, obviously I know how to drive. And, you know, I, that's no surprise that you are to where you are today with those experiences at a, a somewhat young age. Because, I mean, think about how many people get into a normal job in corporate America and it takes them how long and what age to even get a, a taste of management experience. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And at 22 years old, you were able to do that, win the awards and then continue from there, which leads me after student painters. Was it straight into solar with your connection? What happened after that? Yeah, so after Student Painters, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, graduated right into kind of this huge economic downturn. And I had actually decided to run a branch one more year right after I graduated. So I graduated um, in March. And I told uh, Dwayne and Jessica, the owners of Student Painters, I was like, hey, I have a fun piece of news for you. And <laughs> told them because I was thinking, I was like, I don't know what job I want. I don't know what direction I want to go with my degree. Nothing is jumping out at me. I've also, even then, was really used to living my life in a way where it's like having some intangible goals in mind, but being open to like the universe or whatever, showing up where I could be like, oh, this seems like a good direction to go. And I wasn't so concrete in like, I'm going to work at this company in this type of role. It was always just like growth or maybe management or influence or whatever these intangibles were. So because I wasn't really sure what I was going to do and I was like, I made $40,000 the last summer I did this. So maybe I should just do that again and then take that cash and you know, that'll buy me some time. It was much harder that year to do. I still clawed my way to a hundred thousand. I did do it, but I couldn't quite, you know, get the two crews running the full summer. And that was a really tough lesson. And like, I think 
student painters instilled in us to like, you can do anything you put your mind to and like, you know, just have the right attitude. I realized that year, like the people that are on your team matter immensely because I had had such an amazing crew lead that summer that I had the two crews in Bellingham. And this time I was in Kirkland. It was a different territory in an area I didn't know as well. And I had some great team members, but they just weren't quite at the same level of leadership. And so that was really eye-opening to be like, oh, I can still force these results to happen, but it's not its not the same if you don't have a good team. Only reason I did so well my first year, what I did do well is, I don't know how, I just had the confidence of interviewing. Like, I'm going to hire the most badass people. And I was very picky. Like, I went through a lot of interviews and I was like, mm-hmm. I could hire this person, but I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right and make sure I have someone that's quality, right? Like, my my uh, painter for the, the uh, paint guns, he was a rock climber. So he was oh, just nice. like crushing it, would crush all the budgets that I ever had. And then uh, the guy that I had as like my production manager, whatever, was like very fine on detail and was like, you know, really making sure that everything was fine. So that kind of mix helped help my team kick ass. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, I mean, most companies you, know, you see now on like LinkedIn and stuff, companies talk about it's all about this, you know, the value in your people and, and, and what totally. they can provide to the table. Yeah. So got through that summer, made decent money. Like still, I mean, still good money. Just wasn't, it was like probably about $10,000 less than I had with the same revenue. That was also a good lesson in um, what margin and profitability really looked like and how much <laughs> that could be influenced by what price point you set. And yeah, it, you know, even though you know how to do something once doesn't mean you're, you can be like lazy about yeah. doing it again. So did that, definitely bought myself some time, but I remember it was Thanksgiving week and we were driving to Boise because that's where my dad's family lives and we always go there for Thanksgiving. And on the way there, I'm like, ooh, I'm about to run out of money. Like, <laughs> and I really don't want to ask my parents for money. Like, I'm a very proud, per- like, probably too too much so. I've also had to learn in my adult life, like, the value of asking for help um, and that it's okay. <laughs> it's Gotta bring okay those to- barriers down sometimes. Yeah. I-, I learned that moving to the city, right? I never lived in, you know, Seattle from Montana. I mean, that's quite, the, you know, it was a drastic that's jump. A big change. And I was like, oh shit, yeah, like I need help. <laughs> yeah. And I got to figure things out. You know, that mentorship, being around the right people. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's one on one. And I could definitely speak into that for sure. Yeah. So, um, so I reached out to Jessica, the, the co owner of Student Painters, and I was like, hey, um, do you have any connections like that would be good for me getting an entry level job? And so she was in um, the, the Seattle Entrepreneurs Organization with, um, a gentleman who owned a, uh, contract, like an, an employment agency, like contractor staffing type worker, type yeah, staffing agency. And so he was able to connect me with one of his more senior recruiters and we did a phone interview and they were able to, like, I basically, I asked for help from her Thanksgiving week and I was on payroll, I think December 1st. It was like Dang. really quick. Staffing for you, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I actually worked at ESPN for like six months, so that was my first job. And um, for me, honestly, the best part of that job was just getting to tell people at the bar that I worked at ESPN because everyone was like, oh my God, that's so cool. (laughs) And I remember in my interview, I was like, do I have to like know a lot about sports to work here? And they were like, no, you're fine. And it was, but what was eye-opening about that role, um, and I was super grateful for it, was that I was basically a budget placeholder position. There wasn't actually enough work for the role I was hired to do, but they didn't want to not put someone in that role because then the budget would have been cut for that role. And if they needed it in the future, Mm. it would have been like quite the process to get that headcount added again. So going from being truly 
entrepreneurial of work as many hours to get the results you want, which sometimes meant you were not working very many hours to an environment where I had about two to three hours of work to do today, each day. And my manager was like, just do what you need to do with your time card each week and I'll sign it. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So then I was like pretending to be busy. Like I literally was searching for other jobs on my work computer at the (laughs) office. Like, but it was not a good time to be looking for a job. And, and you know, I, I wasn't complaining about it because like I was getting great pay, great benefits, could totally afford to pay my rent. And like, it was all, it was all good. But there was a, a guy named Elon who was also from student painters. So this is just another testament to like who, you know, matters. And we went to like a barbecue and I remember like whining about, you know, Oh, I'd like, I have to pretend to be busy. And like, <laughs> it's really annoying about how this corporate America thing works when I would much rather do my two hours of work and then just go, you know, play. And he's like, oh, well, I'm selling solar and I absolutely love my job. And I'm like, oh, good for you. Well, let me know if they're hiring. And literally two weeks later, he called me and he's like, hey, we're about to be hiring for a full-time sales position. And sales was always the thing I loved the most out of everything. So you were stoked about it? Oh, yeah. I was like, well, I was stoked about it. And he goes, you better start studying. He knew that I didn't know anything about solar. I had never taken a physics class. I didn't know anything about energy, but I was good at sales. And um, so I read the website and I was like, solar is actually pretty cool. Like it, it seems like a kind of out there thing, but like, was it pretty new and like kind of upcoming at the time or not? Yeah, it was. Well, so solar energy technology has actually been around since like the 1960s, but it was new in that the state had passed some incentives and the federal government had passed some incentives. And so there was actually like an economy being Mm -hmm. created around this. So, um, yeah, this was 2009. It was a full commission, commission-only sales position. Um, I did negotiate one month of minimum wage training pay. How did that make you feel coming from having good money in entrepreneurship to this random budget-paying, you know, filling job to full commission? So I was kind of like, yeah, bring it on. But I was also like, okay, I'm, I am literally living paycheck to paycheck. So while my rent is reasonable because I have roommates and also Seattle was a lot more reasonable in 2009 than it is today. Jeez, yeah, tell me uh, <laughs> but I was like, okay, I mean, I have enough financial wherewithal to realize that like my runway of being able to pay my most basic needs is two months. And that's with the one month of training pay. But I was like, you know what? The confidence from Elon and just other people encouraging me to do it like that, that really made a big difference. I don't think I would have done it if I was like just going for it by myself. And he was a really good mentor to me in the space. And so when I got the job, I remember it was so reminiscent of student painters. I went like a whole month. I had done like 10 or 12, um, we called them consultations, but they were sales calls and hadn't sold a thing. And I'm like, oh, this is like the same <laughs> thing I went through before. Like, why am I? And I was like, okay, well, what am I not doing? And I, I literally, you know, habits die hard. I'd fallen back into the same pattern of like, oh, I don't really want to like make this awkward or uncomfortable. It was also, again, I mean, solar projects at the time were like thirty dollars to $40,000. So it was the same feeling I had as an 18-year-old selling something that was three or $4,000. I was like, how can I ask these people to buy thirty dollars to $40,000 things when that feels so out of reach to me? And it, it was just a testament of like, oh, you have to just like fake it till you make it. Be yeah. more confident. Like 
I don't Sales get to decide. <laughs> yeah, I don't decide whether they think this is affordable or attainable to them. Like they get to decide that. And I remember there was a project. Um, Elon came and shadowed me, and we had done like the first half of the call, and we're out in the car, and he's like, "Amy, this dude wants to buy from you. Like, go actually close the job." <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Okay, fine. I have to just like lean into it." And so I sold that one on the spot, and it was because I was like just you're going to be uncomfortable it's okay it'll be temporary like and the worst thing that happens is he's going to say no anyways and so then that kind of um i just needed the one to have the confidence to be like okay i can do this and it was really tight those first six months or so i mean being commission only in a you know really down economy i lost a lot of sales to like oh i wanted to do this but my house is underwater oh i was really excited but i just got laid off there was a lot of that it was pretty how did you manage through? Did you ask for help? Did you just kind of make, figure it out? Uh, when I moved to Seattle here, I had gone into business-to-business uh, -business telecom sales. Uh, same, pretty same thing, commission only. And I was like, oh, shit, what does this even mean? You know. But I, I just kind of was like, I got to figure it out. Yeah. right? And I always just figured it out even though it was fucking tight and I lived porously. But was that the same thing or did you have a good system around you? What, what, what got you through that? Um, I think I was really good at um self-management from just having been a sales coach for so many years I really was able to like break it down in a way that didn't feel so overwhelming had anyone helped you like really understand finances budget or did you just kind of figure it out I think student painters helped me with that a lot because we had to do those profitability analysis mm -hmm. analyses for every single job we did and um Dwayne was always like really on it in terms not only teaching us about profitability but I remember he used to be like start a Roth IRA, like start your investments. If you start investing at age 20, like the exponential growth of whatever you invest in just has so many more years to compound than it does if you start at 30 or 40. And so anyways, yeah. And I think my dad was a big part of that. He was very, okay. very budget conscious. So I was, I was fortunate to have financial teachings my the whole life. Um, and so what I really did was just like, okay, rent budget, food budget, uh, cell phone budget, whatever, like my most basic things broken down each month. And then how much did I have to sell to do that? Okay. If I need to sell that much, how many projects do I have to close? Which means how many appointments do I have to sit? And I would and just you made make... it happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't really remember. Like, here's the thing is like, I think sometimes you block out certain things that weren't very pleasant. So I'm like, I think I just made it happen, but I don't think it was like, that like I think the the struggle was real. <laughs> the only reason I bring it up is you know as I look back at those days, you know we called it a break even. You got to know your break even. Mm -hmm. And there's sometimes I was scared like fuck, dude, what what if? But I couldn't even think about what if because that's such a dark, twisted, you know, fucking path of what could happen. But somehow I always made enough. Yeah. And it's funny how sales works because you know my I remember people like you're making you're in commission sales. It's psychotic. Like yada yada yada. The only reason I bring that up is if anyone has an idea of, you know, entrepreneurship, usually you got to start in sales and a lot of jobs are either mostly commission or majority commission. And for most people, you know, the old way or maybe parents are feeding into them like you can't do that. There's no way. And, you know, here we both are. We worked in commission sales and you figured it out. Yeah, I think what also helped was, you know, I had, I had a credit card and in sales, it's, you know, you can have especially commission only you could have paychecks where you would make nothing or close to nothing but 
I think the personality of an entrepreneur or of a salesperson is we really love that, like the big win or the, the, you know, the big check. And so it's like, I would have $500 checks and then sometimes I would have $4,000 checks. And so I would try to, when I would make those big checks, squirrel away as much as possible. Just really, I told myself, okay, I do remember this now. I told myself <laughs> for the first year, I wasn't going to make any big purchases. Even when I got those big checks and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to go buy a flight somewhere or buy, you know, some expensive item that I'd been dreaming about for an entire year. I was like, I need to see how this whole cycle goes. And so every time I get a big check, I knew what my actual like break even was. Mm -hmm. What is my, my monthly minimums? I would put that in my checking. I'd put the rest in savings. And so then after a year, I kind of had a, taste of like okay how consistent or not consistent are my sales and then can i justify making some of those bigger purchases you did a lot better than me i get a big check i'm like going to eat steak like oh yeah you want to go out girl like we're going out i bought a new car i I definitely fell forward but i think you had probably a little bit more budget advice now that i think about it i'm like that's probably where my budgeting like first one-on-one came from a student painters and the, the analysis because I, I always wondered i was like how did i even know what the hell i was doing with my money i wasn't very good with it but um i'm glad you were a lot more structured because <laughs> yeah it was rough for me for a while yeah but it's it's all about experience and like i you know if i'm was able to learn that from my father's mistakes or i watched you know my mom struggled with making some poor financial choices sometimes and what kind of i witnessed the fallout of that like I think people need to be really like gentle with themselves. Like if you never had that experience, no one taught you anything about budget. Your first experience was when you were 20 years old in college. Like you don't learn stuff instantly. I think that's something I've really embraced as I've gotten older is like you can't be good at something you know nothing about. If you've had no background, no training, no experience, you're not going to be as good at it as someone that you're comparing yourself to across the room you don't know what their background is. You don't know how much experience they've had. One of my really close friends, mom always says, don't compare your inside to someone else's outside. And I think that's a really good, especially reminder. in the world, the social media, right? Totally. Like I'm happy we didn't, we like, there was my space kind of when I was in school, but like, you know, we weren't as, you you weren't like living vicariously through people. You're sharing like music and like stupid messages. But now like I could only imagine growing up and you're like, oh, like this is what I need to do or have to do or I can't show anybody my weaknesses because I'm posting on Instagram all the time. Yeah. And the weakness, the weaknesses and being vulnerable, like that's what actually forms really good human connection. So I think anytime I can be vulnerable, I try to be. And it's also because I guess I feel confident enough now to do it, but yeah, I just think it's a good reminder that like I I have a lot of um, you know, things that were afforded to me or privileges that I have just because of the family I was born into and where I was born and and the education I received growing up. So, you know, if you're learning something for the first time, like give yourself some grace. Like you you can't know what you don't know and it always takes time to learn something. The the book Outliers um kind of opened my eyes to that too where like to really be an expert or a star athlete or um, or whatever the case may be, it's like it takes ten thousand hours to master become master ex- skill. Yeah, and so if you've never had any experience or exposure, you're you're human. You can't be good at something without trying it and going through the learning curve first. You don't get to skip those steps. Are you a big book person still? No, neither. <laughs> I so there's an app that someone in my EO group told me about called Blinkist, and it's basically Cliff Notes in an app form, and you can read 
a lot of books on there in kind of an abridged version. And I've always been a big picture person. And so when I try to read a book, sometimes it feels very like repetitive. And I've, I've struggled with this because being around other entrepreneurs, most of them are avid learners. And I consider myself an avid learner, but I don't like reading books as my style of learning. So Blinkist for me or any sort of like summary type of thing where I can get the concepts of something has kind of been my go-to. Have you heard of 50 success classics? No. So it's basically 50 because, you know, in entrepreneurship sales, you always get these books of like, you know, the how to master skill or different experiences of how to be successful. Other entrepreneurs saying how to be successful. It's basically spark notes and an audible of all those 50 books. So they just go and hit like the, the main points instead of reading. And I, I definitely have enjoyed that. I, I like the tangibleness of reading because, you know, they say you learn visually tangibly and audibly Mm -hmm. the thing about like tangibly having that and reading it i feel like gives me a deep like if i'm just listening to audible i could tune out to like la la land sometimes and i'm like oh shit i don't even know what i was just listening to Mm -hmm. right um but yeah there's definitely a lot of different versions out there for people because you know i struggle for that because like you see these badass people like read books read books i'm like trying to get into it and like i tried doing it at night then i just fall asleep so like i'm struggling but i'm trying to get into it one of the quotes that they say is you should have a bigger bookshelf than a tv I have an 82-inch TV and I have a bookshelf with like 15 books. So I was like, I got I to gotta try to fix up this this formula here. But Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I have – I'm very aspirational with my book reading. I own a lot of books and I have like, I don't know, eight books on my bedside table right now. And all of them are like varying levels of read. And it's so rare for me to actually finish a book. Audible has worked for me only in the car when I'm driving and I listen to it at between 1.3 and 1.5x the speed because otherwise it feels too slow to me. Makes you tired almost. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, there, I, I, I read a lot more like articles and, and summaries of books and um, do like, you know, whatever workshops or stuff like that. So we had talked about student painters. What we had done, we'd gotten into solar, working on commission only. How long did that last? Yeah. So I worked um, at that company for a little over a year. And, um, amazing experience in a lot of ways that that company, um, is where I got my foundation in solar and the, the founder of the company was an electrical engineer and he was so patient with me (laughs) helping me learn the ins and outs of electrical and solar design. Um, they ended up bringing in, um, kind of a CEO. I think a lot of businesses do realize at some point that they need to like, the founder needs to step aside and like sort of replace themselves to help a business grow and in this instance I think the intention was good but the person that they hired ended up being just not a very nice person (laughs) and I remember there were a lot of different instances where he was pretty sexist towards me and the I remember the final straw was we're having a one-on-one meeting about my like sales performance or my sales goals and he's like yeah Amy you're really doing a great job um and I'm just I'm so happy that this that this little experiment is working out. And I'm like, experiment? And he goes, Yeah, you're you know, you're my experiment to prove that a woman could do well in construction. Dang. And I was like, Yeah, okay. Like, you know, poker face, right? But I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> I left that meeting and I was like, Okay, I love solar and I everyone I worked with at that company, I really did enjoy working with but I was like this is not healthy for me like that's to 
to make me feel like, oh, you're an experiment. Like, yeah, I didn't really I mean, think you were going to work just well. Crush like, someone's, you know. Yeah, it was unacceptable. And so um, Jessica actually approached me. This is, I think, this is why we met is because Jessica approached me to bring me back into Student Painters because she was really trying to scale her company and she had brought in an, another sort of like CEO coach type of person. And so she, I remember we went to dinner and her timing just happened to be opportune because that conversation had just happened. And I'm like, yeah, that was time of, of death. I'm done. <laughs> and so she pitched me, you know, her dream and, uh, and kind of the growth plan she had. And I had been so happy, you know, working there and, and getting to interact with students and, um, you know, help like coach them to pursue their dreams. And so she got me at the right time. I took like a, 70% pay cut to go back because <laughs> at this point I was making good like I think I was 25 and I think I think I might have I made close to six figures that year which yeah. was like insane at that age when I was living at you know with roommates paying like 600 a month for rent so yeah I can imagine <laughs> did yeah did a lot did a lot of traveling that year and a half um and it was really yeah really great experience but so I went back to student painters for a year um and you know had a good experience there it was as you said that kind of dissolved shortly after I left and and several of us left and I think that led to part of that sort of demise um but I spent a lot of time that summer at student painters I was coaching college students and I'm like hey don't have limiting beliefs like society is going to try to put you into box into boxes and there's pathways you're supposed to take that are like the smart way to go and you don't have to do that. Like you can create whatever future you want and you can really be the one that decides what's important to you and you make a career out of that. And it was like in August and I'm like, they're all inspired. They're all moving towards those dreams. Like, what am I doing? I'm not actually following my own advice. And so I realized I actually did miss solar. Like the industry itself was an awesome industry. And so I took that month and I was like, okay, what is actually important to me? And this is coming back to that theme of like the intangibles. What do I really want? I didn't want to do full-time sales anymore because it did feel kind of stressful to be commission only. Yeah. <laughs> so always, sure you can relate. No matter how good you're doing, you just always know there's like that little little man of pressure on their shoulders. Yeah, what just, if next month yeah. no one buys yeah. from you? What if no one answers the phone? Yeah. Like there really isn't much of a safety net. Um when you're in commi- full-time commission sales. Uh, so I was like, okay, I want to do something more than sales. I want to have a lot of flexibility with my schedule. I do want to have some level of influence in the company. And so uh, Grace, I think you remember, she mm-hmm. was like the VP at that time of student painters. And uh, she happened to be dating this guy, Brian, who was the founder of um, a company called Solterra, which is was a solar uh and it's Earth based system. out of Seattle, right? Yeah, based out of... I think he actually started it in Portland, okay. but they have Portland and Seattle branches. He had actually worked for Student Painters before my generation. What a small world. <laughs> Very small world. And so Grace was like, hey, um, you should really talk to Brian. Like, he's been doing a lot of really cool things. And Brian and I used to compete against each other. Like, when I was selling solar and he was selling solar, and I always used to be super annoyed. <laughs> um I would win a lot of them, but I didn't win all of them. And so I was like, I don't know. His company is really new. Like, I, I kind of want something that maybe is a little more established. And she's like, well, a lot's changed. Like, you should talk to him. And I was like, okay, fine. I need practice interviewing anyways. And so I was like very <laughs> good, resolved. Good way to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I was like very resolved, though, to go into this interview and really advocate for myself. 
and really stick to those intangible goals versus I didn't want to be like, oh, well, this is a good job and good pay. I, I should take it. I wanted it to really feel aligned with what was important to me as a next step in my life. And so I went into this interview and he's like, I knew he wanted to hire me because I was, I was very good at solar sales and, you know, he had witnessed that from being on the other side of the equation. And so I just went in and I was like, yeah, you know, I don't want to do just sales anymore. And he goes, okay, well, what's your degree in? And I was like, oh, I did international business and marketing. He's like, cool. You're going to be our marketing director. And I was like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, I don't know anything about, like when I took marketing classes, online marketing wasn't even a thing that they taught. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was still, I mean, the way, you know, living in Seattle with all the software boom now, like I'm sure at that time it was yeah, super underground, you know? Yeah. Just well, online marketing was like, I mean, it was already there, but Trip it was emails or something. <laughs> it hadn't made it to the point of like being taught in colleges. Right. So I was like, uh, okay, cool. Yep. Marketing manager. Got it. Um, and he's like, yeah, you'll be the sales manager, marketing manager. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. So I remember as we're walking out of the interview, I was like, oh, there's just one other thing. Um, I really want to have a position where I have um, unlimited vacation. Not that I'm going <laughs> to, not that I'm going to abuse it. Like, but I want to be able to take vacation or take time off. If I'm hitting my sales goals, like you tell me what number I need to hit. And if I hit that number, then there should never be a question whether or not I can take time off. And so this was like the entrepreneurial side of me. And I was like, I don't want a job where I have to pretend to work eight hours a day anymore. He's like, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. I was like, and one more thing, because this was like September, so we were coming to the tail end of the student painters summer, and we were going to go to Mexico in November. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to take two months off, November and December this year, to travel. He's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. I was like, and I want you to prepay all of my commissions for whatever I sell between now and then so that I can afford to do it. And he was like, okay, fine. I was like, okay, great. When do you want me to start? <laughs> Damn, the person that had no confidence can't ask for the sell to ask for that. I would even, uh, uh, ooh, that, that's, a, that's a ballsy move. It was only because I knew I already had the job, yeah. but I was like, that was really important to me. And I also, I think, subconsciously wanted to sort of test whether or not he would really live up to that mm-hmm. promise. And I was in a position to like, I knew that he wanted me to work there and I didn't think there were a lot of people yet Way to play in Washington. Chips. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, well, how much do you need me to sell? He's like, I need you to sell enough work through January. And I was like, okay. And how much is that? He's like, um, like 300,000 of solar. And I was like, okay. So like I got to it. I, I literally did sell 300,000 of work in like a month and a half. I think they cashed me out. I don't remember how much commission that was, but it was enough to go to Mexico with student painters. And then I convinced student painters like, Hey, I want my return ticket to be a month later, not when everyone else goes back. And so then I just stayed in Mexico. I went to Cuba for a week. I went to Mexico City. And then I ended my month in Anguilla where a friend of mine was getting married. Came home, dumped out my bag, repacked my backpack, went to Kenya for a month, and then came back and really got started with my solar career. That's crazy. So yeah, fun times. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) Um, One of the things that you talked about that I think is really powerful, because I even come across this i'm not in a management position anymore i'm in an individual sales role um but as a top performer i do one-on-ones and try to help people if they ask for help and, and seattle it's a little different from what i'm used to uh at this role as a public company you know it's a little bit more like 
I don't know, political, I guess, that people are afraid to speak what's on their mind sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of just shoot them straight. But when you're in a management position or in a position like that where you're coaching people, it's like practice what you preach. Sometimes I'll be telling people, like, yeah, this is what I do. You know, this is my go-to. This is my routine. And I'm like, wait, I haven't been doing that this past two weeks. Like, no wonder I've been sucking, you know? And, and it keeps that refreshed to you. So I think it's funny how, you know, first, if you can teach it, you can do it. Uh, but sometimes just speaking those things that are valued, like building blocks for success can remind you and we're not always perfect. We'll veer off. And like no one ever has a routine sticks hundred percent to it and is hundred percent going to kick ass. Even you with the sales thing, he put a number and how valuable that is as a salesperson. Like this is what I'm, I'm striving for. Cause some people, you know, they have to like the carrot of the horse type of thing or the carrot and the donkey type of thing. They need to have something to strive for. Uh, so I, I just thought that was really cool. You brought that up because it made me think, I was like, yeah, I go through that quite a bit even yeah. today. And you know, even the more sen- seniority roles I have, it's just that that'll still happen. I think everyone needs um, goals that they set for themselves and goals that or just even asking for clarification. What are you expecting me to do? What do you need me to do? It eliminates some of those like, oh, am I doing enough? Am I going to get fired? Like, how do they feel about me? I don't know. I think having the experience I had already had with, you know, student painters being very focused on goals and had already been in the industry, like, what is the number? Because Mm -hmm. then I could either decide, like, that's not realistic. That's realistic. Can I do it? Can I not? Like, it removes some of the, I think, the uncertainty or even the fear, you know, dialogue that can happen in our, our heads. Yeah, I mean, you're, the the mind strength, I think, is the most important, just controlling your subconscious. Like, it, my favorite thing that I've been taught is, like, it's like an animal. you got to feed it the right things. If you feed it negativity all the time, right, you're going to be in a bad spot. You feed it positivity all the time. Because when we go to sleep, our brain's usually working on, like, what our thoughts have gone through the day or what we've, like, learning, for example. Some people get so stressed out, like, I, I can't focus, like, I'm not learning. It's like, sometimes you just got to sleep on it, you'll wake up, and like, oh, okay, I kind of understand it. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, massively important and, and, and powerful. We can start with uh, just your personal experience through COVID. I mean, did you have to find yourself doing new routines? Um, did you have to change the way you live just at, as, at a personal level, not business? Like, were there some challenges for you, or do you feel like, just with the business that you had going on, you know, still being able to power through it, that it was a pretty easy transition and you just felt for other people. Like, what was that like? Um, no, I mean, it was definitely a big transition. So I was in Mexico for a wedding mid February and I was coming, you know, and I was there with some friends and they were all like, Oh my God, this thing, COVID da da da. And I really hadn't like even, heard that much about it and so then coming back from that i was supposed to go to australia for a leadership conference they canceled the leadership conference like a week before i was like oh we had our president's club the week like right at the time like a catch is like oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) sucks i mean it's but that's like whatever it's like that's champagne problems they got us gave us rsus and our stock doubled so i was like oh well (laughs) yeah i mean that's cool too you can take a more than one vacation with that probably so um yeah, so it was, you know, at first I think it was a little bit like kind of selfish and I was like, oh, like I'm so irritated that my big travel plans have been canceled. And then, you know, as the weeks progressed and we're getting closer to the end of March, I think it was early March. Yeah, it was early March. So I'm part of this entrepreneurs organization that I've mentioned a couple of times. One of my um, What's forum What's the name mates, of it? Can we know? Yeah. 
the name of the group? Yeah. Oh, it's called Entrepreneurs Organization. Okay. Is it a Seattle thing or is no, it a No, it's a global. It's a global? nonprofit global organization. There's like 160 plus chapters worldwide. So Seattle has like 170 uh, members. And so the requirements for membership are you have to have a business with revenue of more than a million a year, more than 10 employees. And you have to be like the founder, owner, or key decision maker um, in the business. And they do... The whole premise of it is you meet monthly with a what they call a forum. So it's seven to ten entrepreneurs. They place you in forums to make sure there's no conflict of, of interest, like that you're in the same industry. And then it's totally confidential. You meet four hours a month. You all show up with your top 5% and bottom 5% in terms of family, work, and personal. So Student Painters actually had an adapted format for this that we did, which was also super valuable that we got to do that and practice that communication style. Um, so that's kind of one part of the organization. And then there's a big focus on learning. So they bring in great speakers. There's different global learning conferences. I've gotten to meet so many different entrepreneurs, um, and learned so many valuable things from all of them. It's just been such, such a resource through, you know, even prior to COVID just learning like, okay, like one example, we needed a forklift for our warehouse. And I was like, Hey, does anyone have any connections with? forklift like suppliers and one of my forum mates was like oh i actually went to high school with this guy that owns a like forklift and warehousing <laughs> company just call him directly and tell him i referred you and i got a forklift for like the four thousand dollars less than i would have if i had just gone Who you, you know? know right yeah so i was like well that paid for my i mean the membership isn't particularly cheap but like if i'm getting four thousand dollars off of a forklift let alone like multiple people who have made inquiries about solar panels it's like okay this is paying for itself and it's making me a better leader, which is a big deal. But anyways, back to COVID. So someone in my forum is a events and transportation business. So he does valet parking and he does some really cool um, like wedding shows and just really awesome uh, business owner and really awesome like, yeah, individual. So he was sharing with our forum how his events had all canceled overnight. So his revenue w went from multiple hundreds of thousands a month to zero and with no foreseeable like incoming revenue in the future. And so he shared that with us and it was like, and I'm being very vague because it's in a yeah. confidential format, but I don't, this isn't like <laughs> really violating anything. I don't think, but I remember him sharing that and I was like, damn, I can't believe how cal like calm he is. Like I'd be freaking out. And he was like, yeah, you know, just, control what you can control and like you know we'll get past this when we didn't know how long made to get there yeah i mean he's someone i have a lot of respect and admiration for so i actually am really grateful to him for foreshadowing what was to come because i was like okay this is about to get real so i started converting our sales process to virtual multiple weeks before the shutdown happened and then we started talking about how would we keep our installation crews safe. And so um, our governor announced the shutdown on March 27th. And the challenges as a leader, I think for me, I'm a very people-focused leader. So I was much more concerned about my team and my clients and the viability of the business because everyone's livelihood depended on it. I mean, I was in that group too, but I was really concerned about, you know, they have had families and our clients were counting on us. It was just like, it was a, so much uncertainty. So 
Shutdown's announced the 27th, but the essential service businesses are announced like the 28th or maybe even the same day that it was shut down. And so energy was one of the sectors that was essential service. Well, then we're, I'm part of an industry group and all of the key decision makers or the voting representatives for all of these different solar contractors were on this email, just firing back and forth. Like (laughs) he didn't mean solar contractors and people were getting very like on their soapbox and kind of judgy, like, and all of you are terrible people. If you keep your businesses open, like just kind of overstepping a little bit. I mean, like he didn't intend for us to keep installing residential solar. That's for like power lines and whatever. And I was like, this is a mess. So I was like, you know what? This is one of those times that I want to just go straight to the source. This is a whole bunch of like emotional interpretation of what's happening. And everyone is on high alert and stressed out. And there's so much uncertainty in this thing. It's super scary. So I just messaged the governor's office directly. And I was like, hey, this is my business. Here's our safety protocol. Here's how we're planning to keep our clients and our uh, workers safe. The way I read this, this was me being assumptive, but I was like, the way I read this is that we totally fit within this essential service category and we're going to be able to keep everyone safe. So we're good, right? And that's what I sent this off on a... on a, assume the sale. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, that's how I read it. So I'm going to just put that out there. So then I sent that on a, like Wednesday afternoon. And so then Wednesday at like 9 p.m., there's a construction shutdown announcement. And I'm like, well shit guess we're closing so i'm you know when you're a leader you cannot put your team through a bunch of chaos and you have to have like clarity and clear direction and it was so challenging because monday it's like we're shutting down no we're not okay we're not shutting down okay now wednesday i think we're good we have a safety plan and then wednesday at 9 p.m i text my ops team and i'm like call off the cruise like (laughs) i don't know what's gonna happen called off the cruise And so then someone had given me the advice, when you're in a crisis like this, you need to make deep cuts fast and deeper than you think you need to. So I literally on Thursday laid off everyone on the team that was an apprentice or an electrician. I moved my salespeople to like a 50% reduction of their salary. I took my salary down 50% and I put two other key people at like, I can't remember, I think it was around a 50% reduction. Everyone else went on unemployment. Dang. That was super, super hard to do. And the and the, the thing I was reminded them of and had to remind myself of is I really want there to be a company to come back to. We've built something really amazing. We have a super strong culture, um, great reputation in the industry. Like one in three of our sales is a referral. Like we're, we're doing some really cool stuff and it's taken on this movement that's bigger than any of us as individuals. So making those cuts was heartbreaking, but what was really humbling is that everyone was so supportive of that decision. They were like, of course we completely understand this must be so hard for you. Like they're giving, I'm telling them they don't have a job and they're giving me empathy. Like must have some good employees. <laughs> I was like so humbled by that. And, um, so that was Thursday. I had to have all of those conversations Friday. I get an email from the governor's office. Hey, yep. You guys are good to go. You're essential. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, and I was so exhausted just from that one week of trying oh my to like, gosh 
not only keep up with the changes of just what policy is, but also like what's happening with COVID. How many daily cases are there? What's safe? What's the protocol? Mask, no mask, face shield, no face shield. Also, you can't get, you know, everyone bought every toilet paper roll and every hand sanitizer they could find. I think I went to 10 stores just to get like disinfectant spray. And I didn't overbuy also. I only bought what we (laughs) needed. But I was like, damn, this is frustrating. So I get that message on Friday. And I'm also freaking out because cash flow is at a halt. It's not like I don't still have rent to pay, credit cards, you know, working capital. Like, you know, there's a lot of money. And I'm the personal guarantor on everything also. So that's stressful. Um, so two things happened that Friday. I got the message from Inslee's office. You're deemed essential. My landlord emailed me to say, hey, tough time for everyone. Don't worry about April's rent. The business or your actual place? The business. That was like shocking and also really awesome of them to do. So... I decided that I needed a little bit of time. I was like, this is so chaotic and stressful for me. I can only imagine how my team feels. And so we just put everything on pause. I I spent the next week figuring out, like, I don't remember when the first PPP um, loan options came out, but there was like a while later. Well, I remember, yeah, I had definitely taken some time to figure out like how to apply for that. But (laughs) yeah, I just remember that, uh, I, I it wasn't too long but once it happened it was just like instantly there was articles about like guys buying ferraris with it and you know abusing it and yeah. it was just like gosh yeah we got a ppp loan and it was literally like life-saving so <laughs> there were no ferrari no, no spot. Lamborghinis purchased <laughs> no um so we i i did a one-week pause I didn't even tell anyone on my team that I had gotten that email. I was like, I need, you know, to your point, actually, you were talking about how sometimes you just need to sleep on something. I was like, I'm emotionally and physically exhausted and I'm one week into this thing. (laughs) Like, I can't lead properly if I don't, like, kind of take a moment for some self-care. So the next week, I let a couple key people know, like, hey, what do we, you know, how should we approach this? We ended up deciding, because... I had this moment where I was like, as a business leader, just because you're allowed to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So like, because I was allowed to work, I really had to think about, am I comfortable putting people out in the field, working, going to clients' homes? We don't know how this thing spreads. We, I mean, we kind of did. We kind of didn't, right? I don't know how dangerous this is. Like, I'm going to feel... don't really know. <laughs> yeah. But I would feel so terrible if someone on my team got COVID because... I had decided for that that we were going to work and then someone in their family died. Like I would personally yeah. feel terrible about that. So I really had to think through this and in the end at in the end I was like or same vice versa one of my employees goes into a client's house transmits covid somewhat. You know like that that was really scary. So I um I at the end of the day I was like you know what if people are given the choice to do something and there's transparency and they decide that that's the direction they want to take that makes me feel a lot better so what i ended up doing was we offered both our crews they could stay on unemployment and we wouldn't you know we would support the case going through and them getting their unemployment checks or they could choose to work and then vice versa with our clients we gave them the same option hey these are all of our safety protocols you know our crews are going to have their temperature checks every day and they have masks and hand washing stations and everything 
would you like your install to proceed now or later? And like 80% of our clients were good with us installing with these new protocols in place. And three out of four of our crews wanted to work. So I basically had one employee in the office so that we could receive shipments and manage the crews. Sales was work from home until almost the end of June. It wasn't until probably mid-April where I was like, okay, what am I doing personally? Because I have, you know, a rental home. I had my primary home. You know, I had a lot of bills (laughs) to pay. And I had cut my pay substantially because I was like, there's no way I'm paying myself and not paying my team. Like, I need to feel this also. And so that was a really scary time. I basically just deferred everything, which is what a lot of people did. And, you know, made sure I didn't actually become liable for certain payments. And it was only a month or so until we were able to, like, kind of rebuild the momentum and, and the business survived those first three months. We did get a PPP, which was the only way we survived cash flow wise. And then the second half of the year, we did more business than we did in 2019. So I think there was a real shift for like... Did you guys change any processes? Like I've seen a lot of companies. The cool thing about Smartsheet is I sell to very successful businesses. So I get to ask them a lot about their business. And like the only way I could sell Smartsheet properly is like, cool, tell me what's going on. Like, where are your problems? Where are your bottlenecks? Where are your silos? And it's, I'm like learning business like so deeply. And I've found so many companies that are like, we literally pivoted and it was scary as shit. But now, yeah, our revenues increased. These things have happened. Have you had to do anything like that? Or was it just kind of business as usual? It definitely was not business as usual. I mean, I think pivoting to vir- a virtual sales process early before we even were required to allowed my team some time to adapt to that sort of style of selling. Um switching to like all the extra protocols that the team needs to have in the field to be safe was definitely um, a shift. And so it's not really been, we we didn't change much in terms of like our, the way we design systems or the way we install systems, but it was more like, okay, we need to make sure we have all the proper safety protocol in place. And I kind of noticed that people would get fatigued with like needing to wear the propter PPE equipment And so what I did personally as a shift was really took on this role of like providing direction and just like reminding people, hey, I mean, I was like the mask police in our office. I'm like, put the thing over your nose, wear the mask, like, come on. Like, I know you don't want to, but we need to keep each other safe. It was just like that constant reminder. Um, and, And I tried to really like lead by example too. Uh, that's yeah leadership 101 we'll get into that further um glad we were able to do that kind of gives us some foreshadowing when we talked last before the break we had talked about you starting with solterra and i i knew that like the last that i kind of was closely enough entangled with what you were doing and you know coming to student painters that was the biggest thing is i felt comfortable with the people that i was around that like in an industry do I want to follow that person, right? If they can do it, I can do it too. So it's like, oh, these people are successful. They're doing it. I can do it too. Oh, they're going and living successful lives. I can do it too, right? So there was a handful, you know, you're just like watching, like what are people doing? What have they done since then? And obviously I knew you had set up to Solterra and then, you know, all of a sudden you're CEO. I'm like, oh, what the hell happened here? So yeah, like tell us a little bit about that. I mean, not many people get to say that they even get to be CEO. Not even a lot of people even understand really what that is. Like I, I, I kind of do, but I still don't. I work for a public company. 
Um, so what kind of groundwork went into that? Did you ever expect that to happen? Was that a goal? Was that something that you set expectations with that you want to do something like that? So just tell us a little bit about that journey since you were there after you bossed them in negotiations. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was not on a mission to become a CEO or a business owner. I was really happy. Um, I like being second in command. Like I like being kind of flying under the radar, hitting my goals, exceeding my goals, having influence, coaching people. Like I was pretty happy in that role for a long time. I was the sales sales manager and marketing manager. Um recruited and trained a whole slew of salespeople over the years and really modified our um, installation process too. I'm really big on customer experience. And so we did a lot of work on like, I mean, kind of stuff I just took from student painters of like manage expectations well, communicate well, like really basic stuff that a lot of construction companies struggle with. Um, But it was about 2017 where I was like, okay, I'm feeling kind of like restless. Like I had gone through... That was six years at Solterra. So I had really learned a lot and done a lot of good things for the company. Um, you know, had some struggles too with just like I had made some poor hiring choices and I had to step in and act as a salesperson when I had to, you know, fire another person for underperforming. And some of that stuff wasn't fun. We, we re- went through a really big shift in terms of scaling super fast. There was the solar division and there were other divisions to the company too. And then we went from being almost 200 employees to laying off like 70% of the company. And so I was still there trying to manage the culture, trying to manage the trust that the employees that remained had of the company. And those things took um, an emotional toll. Like that was pretty challenging to live through. So by the time 2017 hit, we had kind of like gotten through that restructuring, stabilized to some extent, but I just really was kind of like how what's kind of size and scale of the company was this at the time like how many employees do you think you guys had we had um at least 150 and we scaled back to like 30 okay so it was a pretty big i mean there was a split so some of those employees went with the other part of the company and but yeah it was a it was a really big change um on the personal side of things too i was also had been married and gotten divorced in that time. So I was like, when it rains, it pours, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was, um, I just didn't have it in me anymore to like fake it till you make it. I mean, I heard of this quote actually this year, which was, um, great leaders are great actors. And I definitely have felt that to be true where sometimes you just got to put on a good face and show up for your team. Even if you are facing chaos in your personal life or, my not fa- feeling it. That my day. favorite analogy on that is the old red coats in battle, right? You know, why do they wear red coats? Because you can't show your blood. It's like, oh, I just got fucking shot in the heart, but you can't see it. <laughs> um, and then there's also being the swan as a leader. We're like, swans are this beautiful, majestic bird. Once they swoop into the water, they're like, oh, yeah, look at that swan. But under the water, no one can see their legs are fucking just churning 100 miles an hour, mm-hmm. right? And that's like, yeah, I was like, that's leadership right there. Totally. Yeah. So, so 2017 happens. It's a total like reminiscent whatever deja vu of my initial entry into Solterra where I'm like okay what are my intangibles I've outgrown the, not outgrown the position but I had reached a level where I wasn't going to grow anymore I had created a process the sales process was dialed the operations process was dialed I was working 25 to 30 hours a week hitting you know close to the goals that the company had and I was frustrated because the trend of solar had been that each project uh, was going down in cost because the cost mm. of solar panels had come down substantially 
and my compensation hadn't been adjusted in a way where I was working a lot harder doing a lot of this emotional intelligence, cultural rebuild type of work. And I was getting a fixed commission percentage of each sale. But if the sale went from 30K to 25K and I'm still making, you know, whatever we'll call it 5%, same amount of work, less pay. (laughs) So was kind of getting frustrated by that too. And I was like, you know what? I want to work somewhere where I can have more influence, learn from, I was really missing mentorship. Um, the founder of Solterra is an amazing visionary uh, person, but he wasn't someone that I interacted with on a super regular basis because he was pursuing things that the business needed and doing his own thing. And so I was really working very autonomously and I realized that mentorship was something I was lacking. So I kind of was reflecting on all this and I was like, okay, maybe I'll go work for like Amazon or like some really big company and learn oh, how geez. to influence change you at a large, that. I would have, I'm certain of it. You would have hated that. <laughs> I, I work at a public company and even the, the drastic change from what I'm used to and um, Amazon is doing a HQ2 in Bellevue and that's where I work and they're trying to recruit a lot of us. I got some of us, but I was like, you know, I've heard the, you know, different stories. It's like, well, this is a ginormous company. Like, I feel like I don't have a full voice now. What the hell is it going to be when I'm there? let alone the fact that it's a remote onboarding because of COVID. And, yeah. you know, in sales, like, you, I like to be up in people's stuff. Like, what am I doing? And I got to experience it. I was like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, what am I going to just bug this guy? Can I Zoom you all day long? Like, you know, yeah. so, uh, no, good it's... choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't, it was another example, too, of where I got really clear on what was important to me and had identified a couple of roles and it, it didn't really pan out. And I was like, hmm. My sales manager title on my resume isn't really opening doors for me to do bigger things or more stri- you know, strategy, visionary, product management type of stuff. So I was clear on what I wanted, which was professional growth, more influence, and mentorship. Those were like my intangibles. So instead of um, exiting, I remember having a lunch with uh, Brian, the founder, and his other business partner, and they were like, so Amy... Do you feel like next year the business is going to be able to do, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I was like, well, someone is going to be able to create that at the company. And I kept correcting them from talking about me to third party. And finally they were like, so are you not planning on being here next year? And I was like, yeah, I think it might be time to do an exit strategy. Like I've been here a long time. I'm just kind of ready for the next thing. And they're like, well, what if we make it worth your while to stay? And I'm like, okay, what would that look like? And they're like, well, maybe some ownership stake. I was like, well... Part of the challenge, though, is that like myself and our operations manager were equal levels of position and we kept butting heads. And so then like change wouldn't happen. And so I was like, if I have a, a, a small ownership stake, I'm not really sure that's going to make much of a difference. And they're like, OK, well, like, let's, you know, think about it. And so they called me like a day later and they're like, so we'd like to actually offer you majority ownership stake. And I'm having been through some, you know, things in my life, I'm like, this seems like a red flag. <laughs> What's the catch? And why did you change your mind? We went from minority ownership to majority ownership. Overnight, pretty much. Pretty much overnight. <laughs> and they were like, no, it just, we thought about it more. It doesn't, just to, to your point, it doesn't make sense to give you a small ownership stake where you don't have the autonomy or the decision make a, making ability and the financial responsibility and kind of the weight of, you know, the risk and reward of making those decisions. And I was like, Okay, that sounds trustworthy enough, but I, I get off the phone and I and I have this kind of internal moment of like, 
I don't know if like, is this what I want? Am I making a bad choice? Like, can I really do this? Like there was so much self doubt. I called my attorney friends and I was like, Hey, I'm being offered this. This is a bad idea. Right. And they're like, when are you ever going to have an opportunity where you already know the business, like in an industry you love basically being handed to you on a silver platter. And I'm like, Oh, I thought they were going to talk me out of it. So then that was when I really had to have this moment of like, okay, this is what I've been working for and I do deserve this opportunity. And actually it checks every box of intangibles that I had. And it's this voice, it was like this voice of fear that's like, uh, but can you really do this? And imposter- I've heard it's not good enough if it's not scary. I've heard that before. That I think that's valuable, but I was like, you know, this, I didn't want to be a CEO. I didn't want to be a business owner. I wanted to be entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to be, I didn't really view myself as an entrepreneur. And so, you know, I was like, whatever, I guess the, the risk, the worst case scenario would be the business fails. We file for bankruptcy, like COVID happens. (laughs) I had no idea that was going to happen, but I was like, (laughs) what a a good job. (laughs) You know, and I was like, okay, that's the worst. I think I could handle that. The other piece though, that I didn't share is that they were like, if you don't do this, we're going to close the business on January 1st. We're having what? this lunch December 10th. What? That's crazy. I was like, cool, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up taking the leap of faith and um, it's been a ride, <laughs> a wild ride. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I really realized was like I had, I felt such an immense imposter syndrome. It's something that gets talked about a lot now, but like I do have a lot of business experience. We've talked about it through this podcast. Most people externally would be like, oh, you're so confident. You have this energy about you. You, you know, are really good at sales. You really know solar. And internally, I'm like, no one's going to trust me to make a good decision. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never run a business. I don't know the finance side of this. And you can really say some pretty, like, (laughs) negative things about yourself. And that imposter syndrome is really real and um it was the the first nine months or so of the business i was like i'm not comfortable making any changes like i didn't found the business i didn't grow the business and it it was around august or september where i was like okay i do want to make some changes like little stuff like i was like okay i think it doesn't make sense for our guys to buy their own power tools when like that's a barrier to entry and there's people we've hired and they can't afford to buy the tools and so then that's actually impacting our customer experience. So we ended up investing like $5,000 and getting tools for everyone. And I was like, okay, all right. I made that decision. <laughs> um, I think we need another vehicle. So then we, you know, I invested in buying another van and it, it was like this kind of slow and steady process of like, okay, let me try this little like small decision. Okay. It went okay. Okay. Let me do another one. As a CEO, you're almost still faking it till you make it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <It's> crazy. <laughs> And when you were like, yeah, I don't even know exactly what a CEO does. I'm like, I don't really know what a CEO does either. Like, I'm the decision maker now and I'm trying to make good decisions for the company. But like, and that's being in the entrepreneurs organization has been really helpful for me to realize, like, we're all imperfect and we have a lot. Everyone's learning. (laughs) And I get to learn a lot through some of their experiences and that that has been invaluable to me. But COVID has been, of course, a really big challenge. They're learning real quick now. But to me, COVID is what allowed me to finally break free of this weight of the imposter syndrome because I didn't have time to waste 
engaging in this negative dialogue in my head. It's like, I need to make a decision now. There's no playbook. I, I think a lot of times I felt fearful of like making a wrong decision. I was like, oh, like if I make a mistake, people are going to, I'm going to be exposed. People are going to realize I don't know what I'm doing. There's no playbook for COVID. And I remember with that industry group, when I sent the email to the governor, I was like, oh, no one actually knows. They're just, some people are talking louder than others. But like, when you really take a moment and like, what is my gut telling me to do? What, what do I feel is the right decision? And giving myself permission to say, okay, make the best decision that I can with the information that's at hand and just, just go. You have to act like, that was so, so crucial for me to eliminate. I, I wouldn't say eliminate because the imposter syndrome still comes up sometimes, but um, COVID helped me really realize like I I do belong in this role and I do, you know, it's okay for me to like take ownership of being the CEO, being in charge of a company when like <laughs> it was it was something that I really had so much self-doubt around and I'm 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 grateful for this really, really challenging time it, it, from a very personal level that I was able to really realize that. How much do you think it would have differed if that didn't happen? Do you think you would still be weaning and making those little things happen? Or do you think you would have just finally been like, all right, I'm, I'm both feet in? I really don't know. I think it would have taken longer. I mean, I'm sure I, I do feel confident I would have eventually been like, okay, how much proof do I need that I actually know what I'm doing? What would it, would it have been four years, five years? I don't know. I think this has pushed me to take some risks and really like take ownership of the journey more so than I think I maybe ever would have because through COVID, I made some pretty big decisions. Like we've invested a lot now in the company. We did a, a, a warehouse build out. Um, I ended up launching, like founding and launching a, another solar company in another state. Like pre-COVID and, and the version of myself that was one or two years into this business would have never had the confidence to take that risk. So whether it fast-tracked it or it was a completely different experience than I ever would have had, I, I, I don't think I really can say because I, I don't know. Now that you are in that stance, you were talking a little bit about company culture. and I know culture is just a big thing for you. What do you see as your company culture and what were some of the values that you wanted to instill? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that motivated me to start making some changes for the company was I really did want to take care of the team and I wanted it to be a place where there was upward mobility and where people had, you know, good pay scale, uh, benefits, retirement planning, etc. So rebuilding the company culture for me was a lot about just instilling trust. Me taking over as the CEO from a lot of people's perspective was just another change. We had gone through several rounds of layoffs in that restructuring process, which was really only a year and a half prior to me taking over. A few people knew me well enough to be like, oh, this is a really good change. But a lot of people were like, great, another person in charge. <laughs> like, cool. What's this one going to bring? There was a, a pretty big lack of trust. And so I was trying to do things that showed that like, if I said I was going to do something, I'm going to follow through. And that it wasn't just going to be empty promises. So little stuff like the buying the tools for the team really was the start of kind of the shift in the team culture. I can't believe that wasn't done in the first place. <laughs> it's actually kind of common to have. Oh, I know it's always common, but it's just like, come yeah. on. Yeah, it didn't make sense to me either once I really thought about it. So I was like, okay, we're going to buy them the tools. We started investing in vehicles. 
Just little stuff like buying apparel, you know, so people could feel like proud of wearing, you know, the company logo and, um, and then we actually moved office locations that we, we had a lease that like I ended up breaking the lease because I found this kind of perfect space for us. It had a storefront office in the front warehouse in the back. So is that on first? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On I first haven't now. drove down first since COVID mm-hmm. and Mariners have fans. So into Mariners game <laughs> and I was just shocked because it's just so different. You yeah, know, a lot of things are shut down. But then I was like, oh, so ter- I was like, is that always been there? I was like, I used to drive here all the time. No. <laughs> so that's funny. Yeah, so we we moved um, literally just across the street, and there was like this four lease sign staring me in the face every day. And I finally called the number, and they're like, oh, it's already leased up. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then like a month later, they're like, hey, that fell through. Are you interested? <laughs> and it like snowballed. It's a woman owned building. Her and I connected super well, and she was so excited about what our business does. And so. Yeah, so in 2019, we self-performed the tenant improvements, and that was a really big team-building moment because, like, everyone, you know, we had a paint party. We had one of our guys retiled mm-hmm. the break room. We had all of the electricians that work there had some element of the, you know, swapping out of the lighting fixtures or updating outlet placements and things like that. So that was a really big bonding moment. Um, I think for me... Company culture is very much founded on respect, and I talked about that way early in in our interview today too. I just try to treat people like fellow human beings. Like it sounds very cliche, but I I really try to think about beyond just what's a fair like hourly rate. But it's like you know these everyone that works for me has families or has their own obligations. So it's like how can we make this a place where they feel valued, where they feel respected, where they feel heard. Um, so that they want to stay because ultimately mm-hmm. having longevity with employees that are also bought into the same culture has immense returns, you know, for our clients experience for the business itself. And I think the culture now is just people are really bought into this idea of we're customer experience design focused. We're a boutique solar company. We're not trying to be the cheapest. We're not trying to be the biggest. We're not trying to grow exponentially. It's like, we all want to show up and do a good job and take care of our clients and, have a little bit of fun while we do it. Like I put a basketball hoop in our warehouse. That was like one of the first things I did. Cause I was like, it's gonna be so cool. If it's like, um, what does that show? The office that yep. has the basketball hoop in the warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the office guys was like, no, we can't put that up. It's going to like, we're going to break stuff. And I'm like, we'll put it at the back of the warehouse. It'll be fine. People are shooting hoops almost every day. That's awesome. Yeah. How many employees do you guys have now? Um, I think we're close to 30. I think we're around 28. Now that you're in the shoes, this is kind of a loaded question. What's, <laughs> do you have a vision or big goals that you, you are striving for as a company? You talked about it being boutique. So I, you know, like maybe the customer experience is what matters, mm-hmm. but do you want to continue? You know, you said you didn't really want to grow. It's just kind of what it is, but like every position, like you said, you got to be goal oriented. You got to be striving for something. You know, what is the vision? What is the goal at this point? Mm. Yeah, I have some more wine for that one. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, all right. No, I get asked that a lot. And I think sustainable growth has always been something that I that I strive for. Like when I make a decision for whether or not we're going to add another crew, it has to be enough consistent sales um, to support that. Like I have to feel like we can justify the investment. I, I don't want to hire people just to lay them off three months later. So I take those decisions really pretty seriously. Um so I imagine that we're going to, or I envision us really like growing 
don't know, 10 to 20% a year. Like we're definitely going to grow over last year, but we weren't really able to operate at our yeah. max efficiency. But yeah, I, uh, I'm only in Seattle part-time now. And so when I'm here, I try to really interact with every employee that I see coming in. And I was talking to two of our installers yesterday and they asked me the same thing. They're like, well, what's your vision? Are you going to leave? Like, don't lose, don't lose faith in us. Like we want, you know, we're really proud of what we're doing. And I was like, you know, I just want to make a really good place for people to work where we all make a good living and, you know, take care of our clients and continue to foster this referral source. And so exponential growth isn't really my vision. It's like, maybe we'll grow 10% a year. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll stay the same size. It's, it's a bit more, it's less linear than that for me, I guess. It's less like grounded in the numbers or like how much we're going to grow. It's more like, are we making enough money to sustain the business and to pay everyone a living wage? And as long as we're doing that, then the business feels viable to me. So now <clears throat> we'll make this somewhat quick because then I'll just rapid fire a couple questions. <laughs> okay. um, what's going on in Austin? So how did this come about? Yeah. So one of my key employees and his wife relocated to Austin and he was a really um, integral part of the business and I didn't really want to lose him as a resource. Uh, he was a, he was a key part of that culture. Him and I lived through a lot of the changes that Solterra had been through. We were peers before he was someone I was very nervous about becoming the CEO when I was like, maybe he's going to be jealous. Maybe he's not going to want to report to me. And he's been like, you know, my number one biggest support through all of it. So the idea of him, like not being part of the company was just not something I was very happy about. So, um, and he was very gracious. He's like, I'll support the company as long as it needs while I make the transition. And so after processing this devastating blow of him moving, I was like, maybe this is an opportunity versus a loss. And so we kind of had a few conversations. I was like, what do you think about opening like a small solar business there? Because I asked him if he wanted to stay in solar and he was like, ideally, and he was going to interview for other solar companies in Texas. And he couldn't really get like a call back from anyone, which is usually a good sign that maybe there's room in the market for another business. So, um, so those conversations evolved into us co-founding, um, a different solar company in Austin, Texas. And we, um, the articles of incorporation went live like July of 2020. Congrats. Yeah. So we have our first, uh, couple of sales where kind of got all the insurance and paperwork and everything, all the like logistical stuff behind the scenes done last year. Um, kind of on the side, we were both working full time on Solterra. And, uh, and so now I'm the one that's doing the sales and we have our first, uh, four customers down there and the, the storm that happened and the, the grid kind of failures that happened in Texas have been really pretty eye opening for a lot of people there and, um, have opened a lot of doors in terms of just us being able to sell some solar projects. So I can only imagine, would they still have been able to operate with that? Um, if they had batteries, yes. And so every Crazy. sale I've made so far includes some sort Better of battery backup. Batteries. <laughs> yeah, people want it. They want the energy independence. So, and what's been really cool about that is it's forced me to return to something that I used to do, but was really to like trust in the team members and then, and empower them to make some of their own decisions. COVID forced me to be really, really hands-on and kind of wear all the hats because I had so, to lay off so many people. And it's taken some time to get out of that sort of crisis mode mentality. And so this move has actually helped me to realize, okay, I have these team members in place. I literally cannot do both things at exactly the same time. I need to go back to being 
a true leader. And to me, a CEO is really just like getting all the different key people, the teams in your organization working in alignment with a similar goal. And that actually takes a lot more time and energy than I think a lot of people realize. I certainly didn't realize it, but it's opened my eyes to like the team I have now is super, super strong and they're thriving in this environment of me removing myself. And it's been, it was hard at first to let go of that control, but being here this trip, I'm like, wow, this, this team is so cohesive and I have the right people in place. And, and so we get to just talk about like what they're doing well and what their challenges are, how their personal lives are going. And I just get to have those conversations and then I leave again and the, like the business goes on without me. And it's kind of cool to watch that. That's really cool. I mean, yeah, being a leader, you have to be able to kind of, you can't really like replicate yourself because no one does things the same way, but being able to show them the ways to do it, that it can be self-sustainable now yeah. that you're doing this, how are you able to just like t- tune out? You got two businesses going now. You're <laughs> just working through moving to Austin. How are you able to actually relax and have a personal life? You just bail out to Kenya again and like, uh, <laughs> you know, like what, what's the deal there? Uh, I don't think that I'm succeeding at doing that right now. If I'm being totally honest, I think that I'm putting all the pieces in place and I feel like I witnessed it this trip. I actually can, I like, I can feel the like light at the end of the tunnel where I promoted someone into the sales manager role, which was what I was still doing, even though I was CEO of the company, I still owned the sales process. So now we have a sales manager, an ops manager, and they all have their KPIs and they know what they need to do to support the business. And so that was really important for me to get established. And then in Austin, we have our first couple of clients moving through the permitting process. And so I think I'm right at that kind of tipping point of like, okay, I can like breathe a little bit. I, I don't, I've been able to relax. Are you okay relax, with but... it or are you trying to better improve that? I guess like, are you one of those people like Elon Musk? That's like, I'd barely sleep. I just fucking boss everything out. No. Or are you really trying to focus <laughs> on improving that quality of life? No. One thing I haven't sacrificed on is sleep. So I get eight hours of sleep and I, and I defend that because I'm just, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I'm not a morning person <laughs> and you don't really want to be around me if I don't get those eight hours. Um, my partner, like life partner, um, is way better than me at that balance. And so he's really helped me shut off occasionally. And like, if we have a weekend together, I do really try to, I, I do think it's important to be present. And so I actually hold myself accountable with my friends and my boyfriend, like, okay, I'm going to respect this relationship and not be like too stressed about work or looking at my phone all the time. So those are few and far between, but no, I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's a good thing to be working all the time. And I'm trying to get to that place. I'm taking a um, 10 day trip with my family at the end of April. And I've already told my team like hard boundary, I'm offline because mentally I'm not getting to like refresh when I'm thinking about work all the time, but I'm able to do it. It was the same thing at student painters, right? Like part of the Mm -hmm. year you're working those 80 hour weeks. And you're doing that with the long-term goal of the machine running itself. The solar business in Washington is is there. Like I witnessed it this trip and last trip, and I'm so proud of everyone that works there because it's it is a machine now. It's like running itself, and it's it's all working the way it's supposed to. And I'm hoping to mimic that in Austin. Um, so I'm I think I'm gonna get there now. But it hasn't been since pre-COVID that I had that balance. And pre-COVID, the balance was. When I take a vacation, 
or if I travel somewhere, I'm off. I'm mm-hmm. not working. I think COVID is a, a blessing and a curse in some ways for this work from home culture because people are working from home and they're like, yeah, I always wanted to work from home. They're working more hours than they ever did because there's not a out. hard stop. And so with, and same thing with traveling, people are like, oh, well, I'm working remote. I'll just work during the day on my trip and then relax in the evening. I personally need like multiple days to actually disconnect. So that's always worked well for me. Like if I'm going to travel, I'm off a true vacation, not a working vacation. Weekends typically were defended for me too, at least 24 hours, no work, no emails, complete disconnect. And I did that last weekend for the first time in multiple months. And <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, this is very rejuvenating. So my goal for the next couple of months is to get back to that. Now, you talked about going to Austin because the guy moved there. So you didn't really necessarily pick Austin. You, you weren't like, I really want to live in Austin. It just kind of happened. It just happened, yeah. I mean, that's another example where everyone's I'm Everyone's like, moving to Austin. That's why I thought that was maybe part of the move. No, his life choice kind of <laughs> influenced mine. But I mean, Austin's a really cool place and it, it, it. is thriving. And um, the music scene there is amazing. There's a great artist culture there. And there, there are a lot of people moving there. And Texas is the number one fastest growing solar state in the nation. So when you look at the circumstances, it's one of those things where I'm like, I think this is going to work out. And that's, that's the way I've always lived my life is have the intangibles clear. The rest of it will sort itself out. And um, part of moving to Texas was uh, because my, you know, life partner and I have decided that that's like going to be where our next chapter is. So it was convenient for that (laughs) sake too. Lots Um, of connected the dots there. But yeah, it, I mean, when that many things are like pointing to like, hey, Austin is your next thing, even though it wasn't part of my five-year plan, which I don't really make those anyways, but like, I just, I'm not that rigid with like, this is where I'm going to go. I'm a little more open to like, oh, this is showing up. It all seems to make sense. I'm going to go for it. What kind of advice can you give to people though? Because you still have to take that leap of faith, right? And it seems like you've taken that leap of faith a few times, you know, you're kind of lucky to be with Solterra so long a lot of people have to go back and forth between maybe different careers different jobs but what advice are you able to give in that aspect especially just the idea of even going abroad in high school like you know to me that would have been like holy shit I don't know if I could do that you know like yeah how, what advice could you give there um I think there's a couple things so I'm a big believer of, like I, I like to think through the worst case scenarios and like honor that for a few minutes so I'll take like Five to ten minutes, be like, okay, what's the worst gonna ha- that's gonna happen? With the study abroad, I was like, the worst that's gonna happen is I'm just gonna come home early, and that might be a little embarrassing, huh? <laughs> You'll get abducted. <laughs> yeah, and I, Switzerland's pretty safe. I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, I know it's like super lucky. <laughs> yeah, um, so I like to think through the worst case scenario and be like, all right, I would survive that, and then um, I think that we let our internal like dialogue sometimes overshadow all the positive outcomes that could happen. So like. Fear is a very powerful motivator or oftentimes demotivator. And so if you can try to remove the fear and and try to trust in yourself a little bit more and like take a strategic leap of faith, like nothing I've ever done has just been like, okay, I'm going to blindly dive off this cliff. Instead, I might be like, okay, let me go like test the water temperature and see how deep the water is and like look at some of those you know, what are the worst case parameters that I want to avoid before I go jump off the cliff? Like Mm -hmm. it's still somewhat strategic, but I think we do let fear talk us out of doing a lot of things, whether that's a small, you know, personal move for yourself, a big 
personal move for yourself, professional, whatever it is, like fear, I think gets in the way a lot of the times. And I'm guilty of that many times in hindsight. I'm like, wow, I wasted a lot of time being fearful for that or like thinking through all these worst case scenarios when they weren't that what that's not how that was going to go. Like you can also think about like, but what if it goes well? What if it goes right? What's going to happen? Because those deserve just as much, if not more of the emotional energy. A hundred percent. This is kind of a fun one. Okay. Do you credit your success to luck, hard work, or right play, being at the right place at the right time? Ooh. Probably a combination of all of those, if I'm being honest. Like, I think that a lot of people work hard. And I think the circumstances that we're dealt with really indicate where we're starting from. So I was dealt... I think a pretty good circumstance. I was born into a family that provided me a lot of stability. I was able to never really have like my basic human needs be in question. I always had food, shelter, you know, 30 family minutes worth love. of water. <laughs> exactly. 30 minute showers, whatever the case may be. <laughs> so, um, that was circumstance for sure. And yes, I've, you know, worked hard, but so do the majority of human beings, right? So hard work is something that I'm kind of like hesitant to be like, oh yeah, just work hard and you can do it. Like there's more to life than that. Um, but being at the right place at the right time, for sure, who you know, mm-hmm. um, definitely some luck in there. I mean, it's, I think it's, uh, I don't think life is black and white. So it's like- a kitchen sink of salt, of seasoning. <laughs> yeah, it's all of those things combined and being- yeah, being willing to take a risk here and there, being uh, trying to be strategic, trying to use good decision-making skills, but also like, I think for me personally, learning to embrace figuring it out, learning to embrace you don't have to be perfect. It's okay to make a mistake. Like that has been pretty motivating to me. So now on the opposite spectrum, anywhere through your professional career it doesn't have to be solitary. It could be anything. Tell us about one of your darkest and hardest times that you had to push through. Yeah, so on a personal level, the the divorce that I went through was pretty um, traumatic. I married someone that ended up having some drug addiction issues, some violence issues. I was not um, safe that entire time. And so uh, pulling together the you know self-esteem and the self-worth to like exit that situation, while going through things professionally at the same time. Yeah, I still had to do my job. And yeah, I mean, crazy. I was the sales manager and marketing manager. But and... you were also getting fed up at the same time, right? So it was <laughs> yeah. like double negative. Coming out of that, definitely, um, I think the empowerment that came from like, okay, uh, I'm worthy of better than this and I need to be safe and I need to hold this other person accountable. Um, when I finally was able to like really be honest with myself and then clue in those around me, I, I had been playing two lives like no one knew what was going on for me at home because I didn't I was embarrassed to tell them about it so coming out of that and then realizing like oh I am worthy of more and and pushing for more and asking for more that realization in my personal life while that was a very dark time has been completely transformative for the next chapter of my life and and that's of course trickled over to professional as well Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So a lot of that coming out of that, you didn't have outside influence because you didn't share it. It was all internally. Yeah, it was pretty internal. It it came to a place where I was like, okay, 
I think what helped me was I gave the perspective or I looked at it from the angle of like, what would I find acceptable for the people that I love and care about? And why am I not applying those same standards to myself? And there was kind of an awakening where, um, you know, I mean, like domestic violence is unacceptable and I gave too many chances. Like in hindsight, I wish I had it, but I did set a threshold where I was like, okay, if it happens again, that's truly it. And I think because I'm a goal oriented person and I had given my word to myself that I wouldn't accept it again, that's actually what got me out of it. And, um, and that kind of snowballed to then just the healing and the, the personal growth that came from it. And it's, it's, it's definitely like, shot me so much further in life than I think I would have if, if I hadn't had that experience. hundred percent. Now, if you could give a shout out for, to someone for being your biggest inspiration and motivator, who would it be? Um, I usually say that Jessica gets that shout out. <laughs> she really was pretty influential and formative. Through uh, a lot of those growth years too, right? Yeah, definitely. So, and, but I would also give Brian, Brian Heather, the founder of Solterra. I mean, he, I didn't share it super coherently in my story, but there was a moment where he was like, I wouldn't be offering this to you, the, the ownership of the company, if I wasn't confident you could do it. And him giving me those, that kind of vote of confidence really was helpful in pushing me to be like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll trust in myself to do this. So I would give him a shout out too for do you still stay in touch? Is he involved at all or is he pretty hands off and you're just kind of he's, friends? Yeah, he's still a business partner. He's a more like a silent business partner in the solar division, but we you know, we talk like once a quarter. Okay. And then last one, if you could simply give a life tip or hack to the audience, what would it be? Mm, a life tip or hack. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is like trust your authenticity. And what I mean by that is when you feel like something isn't like sitting right with whether whatever decision you're making or who you're aligning with or how you're showing up in an event, like as I've learned to even feel what that feels like when something is out of balance, me being my authentic self always helps me to like perform better and, um, yeah, like, and to, to feel like I can show up and like be my best creative self. So I think um, I felt that a lot through COVID where I was like, okay, the authentic me wants to make these decisions because they feel more in line with my own values. And especially when there's like not a clear answer, which there's rarely actually like a 100% right answer where there's only one way to do something that authentic authenticity for me has really come into play pretty often so trust trust that whatever your authentic self is 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 likely going to guide you in the right direction super powerful especially in the influential world that we live in right mm-hmm. now we're both in business and sales do you want to plug yourself solterra or the solar company in austin to the viewers sure why solar what are you guys about give yourself the biggest <laughs> plug cool yeah i'll promote solterra because um that business is pretty well established but so we actually, in our sales process, talk about why solar, why Solterra, why now? Like those are the three questions we it's always like want to answer. circle of solar. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you can have all three. You don't yeah. just have to pick two. So um, solar energy is something that I've become increasingly passionate about the more I've learned about it. Um, solar energy is actually the cheapest form of electricity now, 100% renewable. Um, it only takes about two years of 
the panel being in place to offset all of the energy that it took to manufacture it. So it is, and they last 30 years. So this is truly a technology that um, makes a lot more sense than what the status quo is. Um, It does work in Washington state. We get a lot more sunlight than people give us credit for. About 70% of the annual sunlight that Los Angeles gets is what Seattle gets. And we have amazing incentives here and an amazing loan program where people are usually paying less to have solar than they would have paid just to keep paying their bill to whoever their utility is by anywhere between year two and year five. And again, it's a 30-year investment. So there's a ton of upside in terms of all of those years that um, that you're paying less to have solar than you would pay to your electric company. Solterra, um, I would hope, in what I've shared today has already kind of come through in terms of we're very customer-focused. Um, we set very clear expectations. We don't overpromise. Like, you know, our customers rave about us. We have an amazing reputation online and an amazing team to to do the installs. And now is the time because the incentives are there. The cash flow is there. It's already, you know, an economically viable decision. And of course, it's a super important decision to make for our communities, for um, climate change, for just our long-term viability as a country. (laughs) So, uh, there's a lot of different reasons to consider solar, and our team is really uh, very well suited at helping people navigate why it will make sense to them. And if they were interested to work with your consultant team or whatever team we want to call it, or they just want to learn more about it, where should they go? Um, yeah, so our website is solar.solterra.com, and Solterra is S-O-L-T-E-R-R-A, so solar.solterra.com. Cool. Anything else? I don't think so. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. (laughs) I appreciate you uh, coming on. It's always fun. You know, I get to learn from everybody's story myself. So yeah, I appreciate you coming in and I'll let you know when we post it so you can uh, share it and spread the word. But uh, I appreciate having you on. Cool. Thanks a lot. Yep.